Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. Welcome, folks, to this edition of this episode of the Hagman and Hagman Report. We're coming to you live from our radio and television studios right here in beautiful northwest Pennsylvania. That's right. We broadcast live every weeknight, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for your belief and your trust in us. You know, um, last night uh, I had the opportunity to, uh, or I, I had the presence of mind, or maybe the lack thereof, to, to um, record... Rachel Maddow on MSNBC. I yeah, was I know. For that clip, uh, you know, I know. Look, uh, uh, you say why? Why would you ever want to do that? Subject yourself to this. Uh, I, I agree, but I had to. I had to just see this. And, and um, today, uh, we, we were having uh, some meetings here at the uh, at the office, and uh, of course, Joe and but Jackie, Eric, and and others were showing clips of all of the late night shows from that 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 vile, despicable. Uh, Samantha B. Uh, I don't, I, I don't know, that Canadian, uh, uh, transplant from, uh, uh, has got a room temperature IQ to the equally despicable Seth Myers to now Rachel Maddow. But Rachel Maddow in particular, uh, she, she was pretty interesting where she, uh, um, she got on in, on a 16 minute rant, if you will, or actually she was 16 minutes of trying to hold back, choke back tears. And talking about having to MacGyver this country using, uh, um, MacGyver, MacGyver their way back to getting the country back. It, it, it was, it was, it was a convoluted way, uh, by referencing, uh, the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis back in 62 to 25 years later what happened in 1987 at Cheyenne Mountain when one of the missiles kind of decided to launch on its own or, you know, go in a launch sequence on its own. And somebody at the airbase was able to stop it by MacGyvering the the missile. But nonetheless, she, so she says we got to MacGyver our country. She talked about. She says after all, now you know our country. We've got a free press. Okay, we've got uh, um, we've got uh, a, a judiciary, independent judiciary. We've got a military, and I'm kind of going from my notes here. We've got voting, and we've got um, freedom of assembly. And we, we, we're a country with really, we welcome everyone. We've got no official language. We've got no official religion and no king. All right. And I'm, I'm going somewhere with this, right? Um, well, free press, if that's what you want to call it, it's a state run media or state run organ of the, uh, of the administration. If it's, if it's the progressive, the democratic national socialist, independent judiciary, just, uh, Two names, Lynch and Reno. <laughs> or, or Lynch and Comey. Or just Lynch. Uh, military, well, you know, at least we have a military. They're not, okay. She said, we, obviously we've got voting. Yeah. Yeah, we, we certainly have voting that's farmed out to Soros machines, Soros owned machines, rigged voting to be sure. But, Hey, good for her. Talk about MacGyvering something. 
and freedom of assembly. We saw that yesterday outside of her window in New York City. You could see that there as well as in in other big cities where she and others have typified the protests as spontaneous, unplanned, organic. Okay, that's the terminology used. And, um, of course, she uh, um, she was claiming, as this Seth Meyer, Myers, whatever his n- name is, um, you know, that, that Trump is going to destroy uh, everything that, that has made us a country well okay <laughs> through through, through this yeah. through the trump election well yeah hang, hang on a second now and, and the um the seth meyer in particular i saw a clip as well and you might you might want, well why are you listening to all this because everyone is listening to this these young people these millennials these snowflakes these 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 queers out there and i say queer this is their word i mean they're calling themselves this we're queer we're here you know so, so okay it's the way you want to identify yourself it's fine apropos i suppose but these protests that we're seeing taking place across the country they are not organic they are not um spontaneous now I will give them one thing. There may be some spontaneous people, or some people joining in spontaneously as they see this crowd of a thousand, two thousand, whatever, thousands are walking down the street. They may jump in and join. Or that may be spontaneous. There may be a half a dozen, dozen or so spontaneously joining. But aside from that, don't 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 think for a minute these are not planned. The, the money. Look at the signs. You, you don't. What? It, and this reminds me of Benghazi. Remember Hillary Clinton? What difference does it make? Was a bunch of guys who just you know a protester. You remember that clip from Hillary Clinton, right? No, this was a planned protest. These were planned protests, much like Benghazi was a planned attack. And they're using the same playbook from the same radical, you know, Saul Alinsky playbook to take down this country. They they are comparing um they are comparing all everyone seems to be comparing the email scandal to oh the takedown of or or the, the harassment, the scandal, the Clinton scandal is about sex. You know, William Jefferson Clinton scandal is about sex. No. Clinton did not get in trouble for being the recipient of oral sex in the Oval Office. Nope. He got in trouble for lying to Congress and to the American people. But everyone everyone forgets that. And everyone says, oh, you know, Donald Trump, what a bad person. He's, you know, uh, he's a misogynist. He's, he's xenophobic. He's racist. He's this. He's that. He wants to build the wall. Yeah. Well, let me tell you something. Um, how about uh, for all of all of uh, Trump's faults? Let's look at the let's look at the progressive, mentally ill, uh, communist left in their faults. In their faults, starting you know, with Obama, moving to Clinton. I, I'll, I'll give I'll give uh, obviously Monica Lewinsky some some. You know, I mean, she, she, her actions, well, actually, Bill Clinton's actions, whatever, that led to the second president of American history to be impeached. 
but it was the lying under oath that did it. It wasn't the act of sex. It was the lying under oath. Uh, how about Hillary Clinton, Benghazi, four Americans killed, an entire system of weak diplomatic security combined with gun running in other other uh, other black box operations or black uh, bag operations. Um, the Asia fundraising by the Clintons, by the Clinton Foundation, using a public office like the presidency and the West Wing of the White House that includes the First Lady to fundraise and, and engage more than four dozen convicted who were convicted in a scandal that made the Lincoln bedroom, the White House donor coffees, and Buddhist monks infamous. How about Hillary's private emails? Is it about the emails? No, it's about her lying about the emails. It's about the, no, it's Obama's, right, but it's about Obama's lying about the emails. It's not, it's about the contents of about the emails. It's about the email system, sending classified secret access or special access programs over this. Unsecured. Unsecured. How about Whitewater? The largest SNL bailout failed with several people went to prison. Clinton, fingerprints all over that. Travelgate, the, remember the, uh, uh, travel, or the, the travel department, uh, they firing this uh, career travel office. The very first issue, very first crony capitalism scandal of the Clinton era in the White House. How about Humagate? Her sweetheart job arrangement working for the State Department, the Clinton administration, Teneo, and, of course, uh, having a position at a Muslim Brotherhood-connected publication. Uh, we want to get in the pardon gate. The first time donations were ever connected to possible motives for presidential pardon. Mark Rich, Rich, Denise Rich. Foundation favors, of course, CGI, the Clinton Foundation, revealing evidence that the Clinton Foundation was a pay-to-play back door to the State Department. There was a revolving door at the State Department. The State Department, one of the most corrupt uh, uh, entities of, of the, 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 aside from the, the executive office of the United States, where, yes, Clinton made it into a pay-to-play State Department of self-enrichment. The politics of destruction, the the the, the destruction, the, the actual self enrichment through destruction. How about the uh, disappearance and rediscovery of the Hillary Rose Firm records? Remember that? Oh, of course, can't find them. Oh, suddenly found them three years later, when of course they are deemed, you know, no, they're no longer needed in the uh, uh, in the um, uh, uh, case. Uh, of course, the Webster Hubble, the father, in my view, the father of. Chelsea Clinton. That, you can debate that. I don't care. Webster Hubble, his resignation and imprisonment. For what? Oh no, they must just be picking on him. Right? The Waco incident. Remember that? Janet Reno. Let's blow him down. Let's burn him up. Yeah, for those of you who didn't hear, Janet Reno died a few days ago. Yeah, well, that didn't make, uh, I mean, it's not news here. How about the uh, Trooper Gate? Of course, you go back to Arkansas, the good old days, right? Uh, When state troopers uh, helped Clinton, um, shall we say, in his late night dalliances. Jennifer Flowers that capitulated the White House into a tabloid. You know, China. They, they, China would not have the technology it has today. China would not have the technology it has today had it not been for the selling out of Clinton, of the Clintons by the Clintons. 
And who can forget Larry Lawrence? Maybe some people never heard that name. He's a big, big Clinton donor. Bought himself a, a cemetery plot at Arlington. But the funny thing is, he's never, never had any war experience. My uncle's buried there in Arlington. I take offense to this, and every veteran in America should take offense to this. It's a slap across the face to every American. But you, but, but you see, you're not going to hear this from the millennial snowflakes. Oh, cry me a river. I mean, to, to watch Rachel Maddow, Chris Matthews, Seth Myers, all of these, all of these, these snowflakes, these, 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 these millennials, these, the words that I dare not use to describe them choke back tears and emotions saying, oh, our country is lost. So here's what we have to do. We have to go out and we have to fix it. Well, how are we going to fix it? We're going to protest and we're going to protest in many cities, but oh, they're spontaneous protests. They've got sanitation trucks filled with sand protecting Trump Tower. Who are they, who are they protecting? Yeah, what's it from? Who uh, from ISIS? No, Donald Trump protests erupt across the United States. Thousands have taken to the streets across the nation to protest Donald Trump's election win. Many chanted "Not my president" and burned an effigy of the president-elect. Not my president, now, these, Donald Trump, being an, an American born in America by America. Or, I mean, he was born in America. He's an American businessman. When we got a Kenyan Muslim in the White House, and they're saying that Donald Trump's not my president. Yeah. And this is going, um, you know, ripping across the the country. Um, there's articles on this from CNN to Wall Street Journal to the Telegraph uh, to a number of places. Um, how the world's reacting to the news that Donald Trump is the next president. And it goes on to list a number of areas where uh, people are protesting uh, as backlash begins uh, across America, now thousands of Trump, uh, thousands march against Donald Trump as protests sweep the U.S. Today, Trump met with Barack Obama at the White House, um, and the protest had the burning in effigy from New York to Los Angeles. Thousands of people marched and chanted. Roughly ten cities were involved against the billionaire president-elect a day after his stunning upset, carrying signs "He's not our president." Love Trump's hate. Uh, most of the rallies were peaceful, and they say a bitter election campaign has left the nation divided. The popular vote is split almost exactly between the two candidates. Now, in uh, other news, in protesting to Trump uh, and his presidency, the Pope weighed in, and I found this uh, to be very interesting. Pope Francis opposes unchristian Donald Trump saying uh wall, talking about the walls and how he's a false prophet the president uh president elect trump being a false this truly is a global prophet. system coming and it's already here that is it says in a bizarre election one of the biggest election oddities was the catholic vote as catholics rallied to support pro-life donald trump and opposed pro-choice hillary clinton their leader pope francis went the opposite way without naming names the pope warned against tyrannical governmentalism and terrorist terrorism, fear-mongering, fear-mongering, and false prophets. He alluded to the unchristian anti-life Trump policies, including a proposed wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. Now, Pope Francis, tell me, how do you get 
unchristian anti-life Trump policies for the man who's standing up against abortions. And you're not even an American. You are supposed to be the head of the Catholic Church, and you're acting more like a crybaby who hadn't got their way when they asked to go to Chuck E. Cheese. I mean, you have the biggest, most secured country, the biggest walls, basically, in the world, and you're worried about the possibility of Trump putting up a wall to keep out illegal immigration, illegal immigrants, as illegal immigration is um, one of the, the biggest issues that we see with Syrian refugees being flown over here, brought over here by the tens of thousands, and uh, people from the southern border, whether they are gangs, whether they are ISIS, whether they are uh, just Mexicans alone, uh, circumventing the system of citizenship by the thousands on a weekly basis as Obama not only has invited them in but you know laid out the red carpet giving them benefits uh, allowing them to vote encouraging them to vote without any uh, uh, worry of being deported where where, where 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 is the justice department in that in that clearly Obama was telling was actually advocating breaking the law where was the justice department there where was lynch saying you can't be doing that you can't be telling that uh, people who are not citizens of this country it's okay to go vote lynch was trying to build the uh the court case of why hillary clinton should become president over donald trump well you know and isn't it interesting that it was actually the clinton cabal uh, hillary rodham clinton who weaponized the fbi specifically during the time of the travel office remember the travel gate office matter when they came in and fired all of the people in the white house travel office in favor of uh, the Thomasons and the uh, uh, their own uh, Arkansas uh, people, and of course they they weaponized the FBI. It was Hillary Clinton that actually weaponized the FBI, and this involved Vince Foster as well. Um, so the reason I mention that is because you've got this this absolute attempt to brainwash all of the American public, and and the people with Hillary signs in their yards, they don't have a clue. They've got no clue. Oh my goodness, we're electing a woman president for the first time. I'm going to tell you, you know who the next president is going to be? The uh, the next president is going to be a black female president. That's who the next president is going to be. And it's going to be rigged out the wazoo. You know, Hillary Rodham Clinton, what she did was she, she was shaped, well, I should say what, what happened to her. She was shaped by liberation theology, which is Marxism, radical feminism. This is Hillary Diane Rodham, the witch, the yak Clinton. Folks, I don't think she's gone away. These people just don't go quietly off into the night. There, there are things brewing behind the scenes. We cannot, absolutely cannot take our, eyes off the ball here. We cannot take our eyes off of anything. We have to be most conscientious about what's going on. You know, these late night people, they yuck it up. They say, oh yeah, 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 you know, again, the Seth Meyers, the Samantha Bees, these despicable people that, that couldn't get a normal job, so they, they hire them on, on network syndicated TV to spew hatred because, and they can't even write their own material. Of course, they have to have writers. What's that? Yeah, off a teleprompter. Thank you, Eric the Tech. Um, you know, this is ridiculous. This, this whole thing is ridiculous. Uh, the, um, so I was so angry. I was writing notes down here and I, and I can't read them. Um, the, um, 
you, you know, by the way, when Hillary Clinton, and I don't know how many people know this, when, when she became senator, she, you know they have the district offices and their offices in their district, U.S. Senator. Um, she opted, of course, for Manhattan. Now, she chose an Upper East Side office in Manhattan, and, of course, that cost taxpayers $514,148 a year. It was actually uh, uh, more than ninety. Thousand uh, it was $90,000 more than the Senate's next highest, and that was um, the Feinstein. Feinstein. It was a 7,900 square foot office, just just so you know. And it had uh, a, not, a couple of uh, uh, conference rooms and auditorium, and it was great. It was uh, uh, granite, uh, lined in peach granite. And of course, uh, Terry McAuliffe was involved in, in uh Guaranteeing a loan for their Chappaqua residents, um, but you know, as you look at things, as you look at all of this, um, as you look at the Chris Matthews of the world, and you look at all of this press, you go back to what Rachel Maddow says: "Oh, we've got a free press." No, you don't. You've got a captured operation. You've got nothing more than an arm of the uh, arm of the, of the Democratic National Socialists, and you've got uh, you've got nothing more than a than a smokescreen, an illusion. It's all an illusion. And in the independent judiciary, if we had an independent judiciary, Hillary Clinton would be behind bars. And so would uh, Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton be behind bars. And Podesta would be behind bars. And folks, we are getting into, and I'll say this, we have a lot of information about those emails, about the, um, uh, about the sick, twisted, absolute pedophilia nature of those emails, the satanic uh, aspect of the emails, you think, and, and, and see, the media is quick to say, although that's just, you know, that's just urban legend, that it doesn't mean what it says, baloney, it means everything it says and more. These people are the worst of the worst, and I'm not one that, look, 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 the worst thing in the world you can do is to call someone, is to say someone is a pedophile, you know, and accuse someone of pedophilia. That's, that's, or, or rape or murder or anything. That, that's, that, that's the worst you can do. But judging from the substance of the emails, the Podesta emails, and don't think they haven't, I mean, they're, they're, they're continuing. I think we're up to 62,000 and change in, in the Podesta emails alone. 10 million pages already over 10 years from WikiLeaks. When you look at these emails, you can see, absolutely see, the uh you gotta you gotta put them together like pieces of a, a like parts of a mosaic you gotta put them together but you can actually see folks um the the language that's used the lexicon that's used you can actually see the the the, the um uh those involved and the the sick twisted demonic satanic aspect of this and I, i'm outraged that that the media is a wall they'll go after trump for making a statement and I, you know, look, I'm not going to defend Trump's statements, all right, about grabbing genitals. I'm not going to defend that. It is what it is. But are you telling me that that is more serious than than for? Well, that is that's more serious than Hillary Rodham Clinton's um, six. Well, Hillary Rodham Clinton's behavior and activities with respect to Benghazi. Or everything else I mentioned, the laundry list of things I mentioned, is that's more serious? And you talk about uh, misogyny? How did Hillary Clinton treat Jennifer Flowers and others? You only hear many yuck-yuck jokes about that, do you? And oh, by the way, this election... Yeah, we, we have some Muslims that were that were voted into office. I don't know how many of you caught those. 
you know, Muslim judges. I yeah. mean, it's just we we are we were being overtaken, folks. I would be remiss to tell you that portions of this broadcast brought to you by Omaha Steaks, OmahaSteaks dot com. Go to Omaha Steaks right now, folks. Oh, the delicious! Oh, wow, OmahaSteaks dot com. But in the search bar, use our our code HH. OmahaSteaks.com search bar coupon code HH for a spectacular value. Folks, it's a, it's a family pack and it's under 50 bucks. You can't beat it. The, it, no, the, the cuts of meat so succulent. Man, I'm just, can you tell I didn't have supper before I got here? <laughs> anyway, yeah, more on that later. Go ahead, Joe. Uh, just a quick question. The Maddow clip you're referring to, is it, um, Rachel Maddow cries over FBI investigating Hillary again. No, you know what? I don't know if it's a clip on YouTube. I what I what I did was when I got I it was from last night. I was looking for it last yesterday night. and I couldn't find it. Was, it. I, I saved the whole thing from last night, which my wife looked at me. She said, well, "What'd you do that for?" Okay, I'll I'll find it on uh, separately. Yeah, but but oh, see, yeah. I mean, I mean, look, you've got people tearing up. But Van Jones, when I mean, Van Jones is still relevant, when the hell is he going to go away? Him being, uh-huh. you know, that's right. That's He's the embedded point. into They're the not Democratic Party, just like Huma Abedin will not go away. No. Regardless of who wins next time. No, and we are, folks, we are in serious, serious trouble. I do believe. I was talking to Judy McLeod from Canada Free Press today as well, and she said, man, something just doesn't seem right about that meeting at the White House. I don't know how you folks feel about it. It was, it was supposed to be, you know, just a, a casual meeting. It turned out to be an hour and a half. I got people emailing me about this. Look, I don't know. I just don't know. Um or, or is is Trump gonna is I I just don't know. We need to pray about about him doing the right thing, about him uh, yep. adhering to the Constitution and and him adhering to the Bible. And anyone who says, well, you know, we're not a theocracy. Yeah, we are. And Meadow said, you know, we have no official language, we have no official religion. Um, okay, then uh, I yeah, really, we are a Judeo-Christian country. The language of our country is English, the official language anyway, by law. Although Hillary didn't want it, but that's that's a law that was passed. She didn't support that law, folks. You're listening to the Hagman Hag Report. Later in the program, Answers in Genesis, we have uh, just a tremendous yeah. uh, program. Go to AnswersInGenesis.org, AnswersInGenesis.org. we got three doctors uh, coming up uh, one after the other, starting at eight o'clock, and they're going to um, fill us in on. You want you want answers? The the Bible or the science? Science actually reaffirms the Bible. We're gonna be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Hagman Hag Report. Later in the program, we're going to have three, three amazing individuals. You want to know, see, talk about tongue-tied. I'm going to tell you something, all right? The Bible, of course, is the book, is our basic book. I mean, answers in the Bible, answers in Genesis. We've got three uh, scientists, doctors actually coming on, talking about uh, how the how the how science actually reaffirms the biblical account of creation. 
So if you're ever, if you're ever out there and you're ever in an, in, in having a discussion with somebody that, you know, uh, the above IQ, uh, above room temperature IQ people that actually can engage in discussions about creation and, and science and, and they've got some questions, listen to this program. In fact, call, call people and let them know this program is going to be on. These are the best of the best and I want to thank, um, uh, not just, uh, John, Robertson for setting this up, but I want to thank uh, a Larry Ross Communications as well, uh, Mel- Melanie from a Larry Ross Communications for uh, setting this all up. We've got three uh, stellar uh, PhDs, doctors, Dr. Snelling, Dr. Jensen, and Dr. Mortison coming on, uh, each individual uh, in three hours, or three, uh, four yeah, minutes. Yeah, one after hours. another. Yeah. And, uh, b- but back to, back to this, uh, um, back to this. I, I just, I, uh, we have, if you're watching what's going down, five years ago, we talked about the global elite wanting to start a civil war in this country. You're seeing that attempting right now. And, and we have to remember, objectives don't change, the plans change based on the circumstances. We saw Obama get in office, and of course, when was the last time you saw a right-wing conservative? Now, don't don't even go where you're going. You know, you, you, I'm going to warn people out there. Of course, the media will take these um, these people who who are not articulate and ill-spoken, and they you know they'll, they'll grab like a sound bite and, and make them sound ludicrous. We're not talking about these people, but the on the whole, the people of America who are truly Americans who are informed. Who do have the ability to articulate a point? When is the last time you saw them gather in protest? Maybe that's the problem. Maybe our lack of protest is the problem. But see, here's what's happening. You've got, and, and where, where, when you look at the protests going on, and I think they're going to get worse. Look at the signs. They weren't made. They're not drawn with magic marker. Um, they are actually signs that were made up in advance. You've got moveon.org. You've got uh, mm-hmm. all of these communist-like Luciferian companies. you got Black, Lives, back, Matter. Black Lives Matter. Occupy Wall Street, as Jenny McLeod had said from CanadaFreePress.com. And uh, all of these. these and the, dem- the Democratic uh, operatives yep. who are there for the sole purpose of uh, provocateuring and um, stirring up. And fomenting the unrest yes. as to get the crowds going. You know, we've seen so many times in the past, whether it was when the austerity measures happened in, in Greece, um, to I mean, just about everywhere. Anytime there's an organic protest, and these, these, these are not organic protests. No, these but are anytime planned. there is an organic protest, you know, four or five people on the street, they'll throw their provocateurs in there, then they'll see a gathering of people, and what they do, it's a crowd psychology uh, environment. And they play off the the crowd, um, uh, the psychology of the crowd, and the provocateurs. How many times have people been caught uh, in protest? You know, lighting things on fire, starting to throw rocks at, pol- at the police, who've been called out and run back behind the police line, uh, and have been caught being provocateurs. But you have the money of George Soros behind the Bill Ayers type of uh, disturbance creation. And you have a recipe for disaster. These people can travel. Uh, and, and it's interesting. A few websites have pointed out the same protester from Ferguson, Missouri, 
to oh, yeah, the, the, Chicago. Absolutely. And they Trump travel event. first class and they put them yeah. up in first class hotels. Yeah. I, I didn't mean to interrupt and over talk you, but no. I'm, I'm just saying that, that yes, you can see this. And, and look, they, the, the media, the, 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 uh, with the wonderful media that Rachel Maddow is not only a part of, but spoke so glowingly about as she choked back tears last night from, from, uh, her uh, upset about, uh, uh, the, the, the unbelievable win. How could this possibly happen? Chris Matthews, oh my gosh, and using the Lord's name in vain to say how, oh, it looks like he's gonna win. I mean, these people are sick. These people are sick. They're Luciferians. Um, and, and I mean that because they are part of this attempt to be, to, to have a seat at this globalist table and all these globalists by, by virtue of the WikiLeaks, by the, 10 million folks understand this 10 million documents over the last decade by WikiLeaks and the last 65,000 emails released from the Podesta files show that these people are truly Luciferians. This is not some, some adjective, uh, I'm throwing out there. These are truly Luciferians. Their God is Lucifer and their, 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 their hero is Saul Alinsky who dedicated his book, Rules for Radicals to Lucifer. So there it is. So don't accuse me of hyperbole. Um, so all of this together is we are looking at a most dangerous period in American history. When you've got, when you see this, when, and my source was right, as it was correct, and, and you remember me writing the, the moniker or the, the, the internet name was given to him was Rosebud, and, and people wrote in and said, ah, oh, that's just a bunch of BS. Well, let me tell you something. What are you seeing today? Are you see, are you not seeing the very things that he had said that were, that were going to come to pass coming to pass? Yeah, maybe you got the time wrong, but, but again, you you adjust given the situation. Now I'm going to give a plea out right now, very quickly before the, we get into any further in the program. I'm gonna, folks, look, we are just starting. This is day one, really full day, the first full mm-hmm. day when we are actually awake, coherent, and uh, somewhat coherent after the elections. But I'm going to put a plea out there. We are just starting. And we, uh, well, we've put everything we have on the line to bring you this broadcast. And you may think, well, yeah, okay, what is it? You got sponsors, you got this, you got that. Yeah, we do. And, and, but you have no idea, ladies and gentlemen, what we, first of all, and I can't, I'm not, I cannot, I cannot, I cannot tell you the fight, the fights in which the defense that we have to put up, the fights that, the attacks on us, that have, I just can't, I cannot get into it because I can't, I'm not allowed. All right. It, it, one day, one day, there will be a day, there will come a day when I will be allowed. And I guarantee you on that day, you're going to want to sell tickets, pop some popcorn and bring a friend and watch it because there, that day is coming. And there are some out there who are watching this. You know what I'm talking about. Now, having said that, we're in the fight of our lives as a country, but more importantly, as a community, as a a brotherhood, as a family. We want to be your voice. We want to be, we want to bring you the best, best product in the world in terms of information. Not from a worldview 
but from a, a, a secular worldview, but a, from a biblical worldview. We need your help. We really need your help to keep the lights on, to keep, I mean, this is an expensive operation. We're not sitting yes, behind in front of a screen, a green screen. Uh, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. All right. We are trying, what we're trying to do, I mean, we, we, we 24-7 research. We actually, the, since Friday, we, this is the first time in the history of this, of, of our existence, we've had people working on re- research 24-7. And that costs us money. I'm talking about three o'clock in the morning doing research, and, and so we are bringing more people on to bring you a better product than uh, the best product that you can ever get anywhere else. We don't want to rely on on stupid pop up ads. Okay, we don't want to rely on that. So we're asking for your help. I'm asking for your help. Joe's asking for your help. We're asking for your help because we want to bring you the best product possible. And those are, now, um, look, prayers, thank you. Much needed. Believe me, much needed. We wouldn't be here without those. Not, not even close. We want to be obedient. We want to be watchmen. We want to have sobriety in our endeavors. But all of this takes takes money to operate the cameras take money the the people the, the support people i mean so so that they're not i mean you can only eat so many raymond boxes of raymond noodles right <laughs> um but the the fact is we're asking for your help any help you can give us would be certainly appreciated we do have a, a donation button on our websites if if you want i mean that's great um we're not in any trouble. We're not in any trouble. We're just, we're, we're, things are really tight right now, but we're fighting the fight of our lives. Yeah. And we don't, well, all, in the past, the only thing we've ever asked for is support, whether that be through prayers, whether that be through word of mouth spreading yes. uh, the information about the show, uh, visiting the website. And if, if you have, uh, the ability to donate, um, without going into specific numbers here, uh, it is very expensive to, for the personnel we have, which is is a bare minimum. And if people think we've got like thirty people. We don't. No, we, we don't. We got like a half a dozen hungry people. That yeah. are, when I say hungry, let, let me let me uh, clarify that people that are hungry to bring you uh, hungry, searching for the truth, hungry for the truth, and to bring it to you concisely. And none, you know, none of us are <laughs> are living it up. Um, yeah, my Bentley's in the garage, right? We're, I mean, I'm I'm very yeah. content with a, a roof over my head, with food on my table, and uh, you know, transportation to get me to and from work, and um, anything beyond that is is a blessing. But That's right. um, you know, we're here. We do this every day. I do it when I go home. The research, the work. I know it's it's a twenty four seven job. We're committed to this, and um, we just want to stay on the air. And uh, as you said, we're not in trouble of, of not being on the air. But, yeah, you know, here yeah. and there we run into, you know, these dry spots. And I don't oh. think we've ever talked about this on air. Oh. But, um, you know, when you're budgeting and, and planning, you know, with payroll for the next month and this for the next month and your expenses, and you look and, and you see, well, okay, if we pay all this, um, 
could we pay the next month? <laughs> so are right. we in trouble? And, That's the kind of situation and, we're and in. Trust so me, we ask too. anybody with the ability yeah, go ahead. who can who can donate. And I don't think we've ever actually asked for donations on this show in all the years we've been on. Not not us, but others have on our behalf. To be right. clear, so um, just keep that in, in the back of your mind. Keep that in mind. Uh, anything helps. A dollar helps. Five dollars help. And we're working on things. I know JD's been working really hard to try to figure out, uh, you know, some uh, different ways that we could uh, help us with the money issue and, and help you at the same time. Yeah. Um, and th- there's a lot of things in the works. There's it, a lot of things that it, have been it, planned. Speaking that of that, we Joe. have not pulled the trigger on, and not sure if we will or not. You know, and just as an yeah. example here, um, the video we. Threw the idea out there, you know, what if we charge two ninety nine a month for people to receive the video and left everything else free, and we decided not to do that. No, 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 uh, I don't. Because we don't didn't like want to take that away from those who wouldn't be able to pay that. And, no. and these are the kind of things that that we've been, uh, you know, throwing around. So just to keep the just to keep us honest and the audience informed, um, that's just a, a, a basic wrap up of, of where we are. I, last night, my wife had to come into the office and actually secure all my weaponry. She was tired of having to call the drywall or the drywall people to patch up nine mil. Never mind. Um, <laughs> it's not the drywall. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, speaking of that, though, you you were saying visit Blessed Day Ever, Blessed Day Ever, Blessed Day Ever, Blessed Day Ever. I see a walking billboard for Jesus yeah. and His Word. You know, this is something too because we brought our daughter, my my daughter Jackie on, and and she uh, uh, she's here in the studio tonight too. And I, I wish I wish well one of these days we're gonna hear, hear from her and, and some, see her. Some, yeah, um, but she she's just a tremendous uh, photographer, and JD's a great graphic designer, and together they they've made up some shirts, and the sales help keep my daughter in. Um, Doing what she's doing, she actually resigned from her job. She 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 said, "Dad, I believe in what you're doing. I want to help you." And I said, "Okay, you know that's fine. And whenever you have time off." And then she just said, "Look, I cannot do both." And I said, "Well, then you know we'll take the hit and just go ahead and continue working." And she said, "What if I what if I come work for you? Just pay me when you can." And I'm like, well, "That's not fair." Anyway, uh, long story short, she's on board and, uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's Joe and I and Eric the Tech and Jackie and that, that really is the, is the inside, uh, scoop here. But, but blessedayever.com. That's, JD's got some wonderful shirts. Well, she's got a collection there as well. So that helps her. But, but, you know, the, but again, thank you. Again, thank you for allowing us just to take a few minutes to talk about uh, about the need to keep the machine oiled, to keep things running, because we want, I mean, right now, folks, we cannot stumble. And I, when I spoke to Steve Quayle earlier today, he said, you know, can I, is there a chance that when David Langford and I can come on? I said, yeah, we can fit you in, and we're, we're working through the schedule, and that's another thing. Um, talk amongst yourselves. Go ahead. Hey, Joe. Uh, I forgot to tell you, we got to work out a schedule for, uh, a two-hour schedule for Steve Quayle and Pastor Langford. Uh, all right, so if we can do that in the next week, yeah. Uh, next um, week or so. All yeah, right. we have Thanksgiving JD coming and up. John, did you hear that? We have Thanksgiving coming up, and I know on the uh, the November twenty eighth, it is a you, Monday. Tom Horn and Steve Quayle is coming on. No, 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 so that's Tim Alvarino. You change it? No, it was Tom Horn in the schedule. I'm pulling it up. 
I'm pulling it up right now. No. Um, it was it was always Tim and Alvarino. True Legends, the series. They're um, they've they've got a very important announcement to make. I know what it is. It's not that I I don't want to say. I mean, it's not that I'm saying you know that yeah yeah I know what it is. Um, I want them to or they want to break it on 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 the air. Um, okay, but I'm sure well, I'll it's fix the Tim. schedule. If- Wait a minute. No, it's Tim Albrino and, uh, I don't know. No, that's next week, isn't it? I'm talking about the 28th, Monday, November 28th. Oh, um, maybe, maybe this, I don't and, know. And John's I got done a great job of lining up a number of guests, uh, tomorrow. Hour one, James Wesley Rawls will be our guest, and then Oski Stuart Rhodes will yeah. be on. No, okay, I see what you did here. Yeah, uh, next Tuesday. In hour one, Steve Quayle and Tim Alberino. Next Tuesday, in hour one, Steve Quayle and Tim Alberino. On the 28th, you have Steve Quayle and Tom Horn for the whole show. All right. So we'll I, I got to remind Steve about that because I, I, okay. All right. And then anyway. And um, next week, we got Doc Marquis, Pastor Mike Spaulding. Uh, we have Pastor Langford Standeo. Mike Abenderoff and Steve Quill and Tim Alberino. It's going to be a fantastic week. We got a great until I mean I'm going to be I'm going to be working New Year until the New Year. We got uh, a guest filled, uh, content rich shows that we'll be bringing you each and every day, and uh, we're continuing to branch out. We're going to be having new guests on, uh, and, and that's courtesy of JD and John Robertson. And we want to thank them both for their hard right. work in getting these guests. Um, That's a time-consuming process, too, by the way. It and, is. And, it is very time-consuming. Talking moly. to guests and uh, making sure we find a, a perfect fit and time slot for them and getting everybody on the same page. Uh, and we're learning as we go. So it is definitely a process. Um, Did you want to say something, Eric? Why, are you gonna you going to donate? Oh, uh, you know what? I, I don't. I let don't me know. Uh, let me do know. this. We have Hagman and Hagman dot right. com, folks, and we have Hagman Report dot com. I will go to Hagman. And I, Hagman. I, you know what? I, I feel almost embarrassed to even say this, to, to even ask like this, because you know, and people will say, "Well, you've got sponsors." Yeah, we do. You don't understand how much it costs. You, you, if I told you what our electric bill for the studio was last last month. I thought we siphoned it from the neighbors. It's a thousand dollars. Wow! Just for one month of electric. Okay, let's see. Donate button. Where can we find the donate? Okay, on Hagman and Hagman dot com. On the right hand side, below the middle of the page, under my dad's stained by blood book icon, uh, help support H and H. And the donate button is right under there, along with the P.O. box address if you don't want to use PayPal. Again, on HagmanandHagman.com, on the right-hand side of the page, um, the lower half of the page, under my dad's book, uh, Stained by Blood, his, that book icon, is the donate button. Yeah, and people, now, by the way, people think, oh, yeah, you make a lot of money in books. Yeah. No, you don't. I mean, I just, no, you don't. You 12,000 copies. I, I don't know how much you did on the how you did on the books. I know it costs. I, I couldn't. Uh, okay. I know after the printed and, 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 and given out, you get not that much. It's like selling CDs. You know, people who make CDs, they get you know basically a dollar per CD. After you know, the managers are paid, uh, the record companies paid, and 
you get the so Oprah. on and so forth. You, you get, um, you know, a small percentage uh, of. But it, it, we, you know what? We should. We're taking too much time on this. We should, and, and I apologize. Uh, this just hit you know, me. It feels good. <laughs> it hit me because um, <laughs> it feels good not having to, to get into. I haven't seen. You know what? Okay, I very I bottom right hand side of the donate page or of the HagmanReport.com. Very bot on the bottom right hand side is the donate button. Okay. Thank you guys out there for asking. And on yeah. both sites on Hagman. Report.com and Hagman and Hagman.com. It's on the lower half of the page on the right-hand side. And, and we want to do right by you. See, this is the thing. Um, it's a, you know, somebody sent me, a, and, and this, Joe and I were both captured by this. Somebody sent us a, 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 a hot tip, uh, and this is supposedly an insider. You know, it took us about six hours together to run this hot tip down. And if it would have been proven to be true, it would have been some pretty significant news. Well, uh, we vetted it. It took us, again, it took, it took him and I six hours worth of chasing leads like private detectives that we are. And when we finally got to the, got to the source, we found out that it had no merit whatsoever. But had it had merit, it would have been a heads up for each and every one of you and geographic specific to something that would have, be, would have been taking place. Uh, it, because it turned out to be false. I'm not going to get into it, but. It, it, but see things like that, um, that that we try to do because we, we, I never want to come on here and say, you know what? Oh my goodness, the the Russians are going to invade through Alaska and, and you know come in and take your house and clobber you over the head, you know, take your dog. No, I'm not going. No, it, we ha, we ha, we go on on hard. Uh, we run down leads and, and hard evidence. Um, so anyway, so that takes a lot of time. And uh, a lot of effort, and we try to bring on the best people too, Joe. You know, I mean, we're the best people to have the evidence, and especially when you get into current events, and especially things like the economy is um, the big one. The economy too, yeah. I mean, man, that's I don't know. It's uh, I don't know. And speaking, uh, you know what? Speaking of sponsors, let me do this right now uh, since we're on this topic because uh, this Todd Simon, the owner of Omaha Steaks. Man, I did not know the philanthropic uh, activities. It seems like a lot of rich, well-off people, business owners like Todd Simon. I'm not—I didn't mean to say rich, but business owners, successful business owners. He's a, he's a fifth-generation owner of, of Omaha Steaks. He's going to be coming on and talking about things he's doing. I mean, Gary Haven, for example, he's—he's he's working his heart out in Haiti. You know, um, flying. I mean, feeding spending people millions, in Haiti feeding of his own money. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Omaha Steaks, while we're at this, and might as well, I, I want to address this right now, okay. because this is such a great deal. And this is something, I've actually saved money in this particular case, because I looked at this, and uh, I looked at Omaha Steaks, I saw that they had this family pack, which we ordered, We, my wife and I ordered this, and we got the greatest cuts of, of steak, meat, um, oh, it's just fabulous, and the taste is just uh, it, it's unmatched and it's unmistakable. So if you are struggling to find the perfect gift out there, or if you yourself want to get yourself a great deal in steaks, in pork chops, and and, and, and chicken breasts, uh, let me tell you, OmahaSteaks.com. That's the place to be. It, it, again, if you're struggling to find the perfect gift for someone who has it all, OmahaSteaks.com. Let me tell you about the special. Because right now, for only forty nine ninety nine, less than fifty dollars, you can get my family gift pack when you go to omahasteaks.com and enter HH in the search bar. 
which represents a 77% savings. I don't know how long this is going to last, but take advantage of it. If not for your your uncle, your boss, your friend, your take advantage of it for yourself. They offer uh, just a great steak experience at home. You don't have to go to you know one of those fancy steak places. They've got the most fa- uh, flavorful tender beef that I've ever tasted, and they've got numerous ve- vegetables, desserts, appetizers, pasta, soups, seasonings. My goodness, seasoning! Oh, you're gonna love that. Anyway, right now Omaha Steaks is giving an exclusive just the offer just to our listeners. Listen to everything that you can get for less than fifty bucks. Two filet mignons, two top sirloins, two boneless pork chops, four boneless chicken breasts, four cabalsa sausages, four burgers, 12-ounce package of all-beef meatballs, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, and I love those. And one Omaha steak seasoning packet, yeah, I'll wrestle you for that, plus four additional cabalsa sausages is free. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter our code HH in the search box or search bar, add the family gift pack to your cart, get 77% off on savings. It's guaranteed to be a hit, whether you get it for yourself as we have or give it away as gifts when, uh, you know, for Christmas or whatever. But man, oh man, oh man, I cooked it. I loved it. My wife, I, in fact, I cooked a meal for my wife for the first time in a long time. It's been a while. And uh, Omaha Steaks, it, it, it was a big hit at the Hagman household. So, um, and and that's one of the first times that Lady, the studio dog, did not get any leftovers because there were none because we ate it all. Um, but uh, oh, by the way, speaking of of uh, Lady, the studio dog, she's an Australian Shepherd, and she's nervous because Trump is president, and she's worried about having to, to be deported. She's an Australian cattle dog. Um, she's worried. She's visibly... She, she, Why? Well, she doesn't want to be Trump's deported. President? It's Trump's president. And I told her, I said, ah, relax. See, that's the mentality. The reason I said that, Seth Meyers' mentality of those people. Come on. Seriously. Folks, when we come back, answers in Genesis. Yes. We're going to get those answers right after this. Stay with us. Ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report, my, my daughter came during the break and she whispered in my ear and she said, I want you to say something for me. And I said, well, what's that, hon? She said, you make sure you thank everybody out there for their generosity, for their prayers, for their support, and especially thank those who, who don't even, I mean, look, just support us. I mean, thank the people who do support us, even even by mentioning us to others. I guess I raised her right. We raised, I shouldn't say I, we raised her right correctly. Thank you. And, and, and heartfelt thank you from the bottom of our heart. It's not often we do this, but, but the, the fight is on. The battle has been engaged. And, uh, if I could tell you everything, if I could tell you everything, I would, but I can't. Um, the weaponization of the legal system is in full force. And, um, Yes, it is, and it's being used against us. Uh, we can't. I'm not even sure we can admit that. Anyway, ah, we uh, can say that. I guess so. And it's it's it, it's sad. It really is. Um, anyway, we we have got such a, a wonderful 
show. Now, here with, we've got, uh, if you've never heard of AnswersInGenesis.com, if you've never heard of this website, we found this website. John Robertson went after this like a pit bull and said, man, this is fantastic. The, the people, Dr. Snelling, Dr. Jensen, and Dr. Morrison, Answers in Genesis, you want to, because my daughter and I, my daughter was having a conversation with others, zoologists actually, um, talking about creation and the scientific uh, verification of the story of creation. Well, it's all here in Answers in Genesis. Now, We've got three people coming on, one right after in consecutive order. The first is going to be Dr. Snelling and how we're going to do this because, um, the time is limited. I'm not, I'm going to shut up here and just toss it to Joe for a, a very, very brief introduction. But, um, uh, this is going to be done in presentation form. In other words, there's not going to be a lot of back and forth here. We're going to allow the doctors to state their case and the case is valuable. Uh, give the information. And of course, we'll jump in when necessary, but, uh, but listen to what they've got to say. This yeah, is important. Absolutely. Our first guest from Answers in Genesis is Dr. Andrew Snelling. He is a geologist. Mr. Snelling, Dr. Snelling, welcome to the Hagman and Hagman Report. Hi there. Good to be with you tonight. Well, it's great to have you. Uh, if you could just take a few moments and give our audience a little bit of background about yourself. Yes, well, you can tell I have an accent. Actually, I was born in the deep south of uh, the other down under. I'm a native Australian. I was born in Sydney, Australia. I grew up in Sydney, Australia, and I studied at university, the University of New South Wales and the University of Sydney, where I completed my PhD in geology. I uh, worked for several years in the mining industry and doing field research. Uh, I was a consultant for some years for the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation on research projects that involved uh, money and support from the US Department of Energy. And uh, But for the last 30 or so years I've been working uh, for in creation ministry uh, first of all with the Australian Answers in Genesis Ministry and then for the Institute for Creation Research which is now based in, in Dallas, Texas and uh, I've been now almost 10 years with Answers in Genesis in the US and I've been living here now in northern Kentucky near the Answers in Genesis headquarters at the Creation Museum uh, for, for five, over five years now. My background, as I said, is in geology, and uh, I've done a lot of research. I've went to, started going to the Grand Canyon uh, back in 1990, and I've done uh, something like 35 trips down the river and uh, hiked the canyon a number of times, um, hiked upside canyons, had uh, research and sampling permits uh, granted by the National Park Service for doing research in the canyon and uh, published that research in a number of places. So I uh, have a long history here of being involved in uh, geology, different parts of the world, uh, picking up rock samples, uh, sending them to laboratories, doing analyses, uh, answering different questions about the Earth's history, looking at the rocks that make up the Earth's surface. My position here at Answers in Genesis is the Director of Research. I run the Research Department, and I'm also the geologist on the team. 
So apart from doing research, I do writing and I oversee publication. We have a online technical journal called the Answers Research Journal, which is uh, online, so it's free. It's on our website. I also write for Answers Magazine, the lay publication of uh, print, print publication of Answers in Genesis, write articles for the website, do speaking uh, for the ministry in churches and, uh, and university campuses overseas as well. Last year I was in Peru and uh, in England. So, yes, I, I keep pretty, pretty busy. I guess so. Well, okay, Dr. Snelling, thank you so much for the introduction. And your, your, your website is just an incredible resource. And I should add, it's answersingenesis.org, although .com will take you there, but uh, .org, answersingenesis.org. Uh, Dr. Snelling, um, f- fire away with, with the material that you have. And I know that it's very specific topic, topic, spe- topic specific and the, uh, you know, um, you're going to be followed, of course, by Dr. Jensen and, and uh, uh, Dr. Mortensen. But uh, with respect to your segment here, just uh, we're going to let you go and present to our audience. And we've got listening uh, listeners from your your stomping grounds, stomping grounds to to the UK, to all across the United States and Canada. So um, fire off, and if you need us, uh, you know, if you we're, we're going to be right here, kind of acting as a uh, Moderators. Yeah, well, sure. Um, what I did want to talk about was uh, some of the research in the Grand Canyon and some of the controversy there that's erupted in in recent years. Um, but I, I've been, in, as I said, I've been involved in research, and um, about fifteen years ago, I was helping a friend who was a um, river guide. He worked for one of the companies. Uh, that run run the raft trips down the canyon, and uh, he put together a book that I contributed to on um, the evidence in the canyon. It was it wasn't a it wasn't a heavily scientific book. It was basically um, had lots of pictures in it, but short articles. And I contribute to that, and I'll come more to the about the evidence in the canyon in a moment. But um, it, it, it got approval to be in the in the parks bookstores and and yet it, that created a controversy and uh, for some years there's been a lot of effort to have that books removed from the park bookstores and now the park bookstores are not run by the National Park Service they're run by an independent association um, but nonetheless there were those who were very um, upset about this book being there it was the only book presenting a, a view of on the on on the canyon, based on on what the Bible says about the Earth's history and what we believe, and uh, yet those who had plenty of other books in the bookstore presenting a view of millions of years were quite upset and irate about it. Well, just uh, about two years ago, that the book was not restocked in the Park Service and it's in the bookstores, and uh, it's been. Uh, not allowed in the in the in the bookstores anymore there in the park, and instead we've got a, there's a new book that's just come out that uh, promotes the alternate view of an ancient Earth, and of course it's it's been warmly received by the National Park Service for the bookstores, and uh, which is which is very sad. In other words, they only want to promote one view, and yet we 
are adamant that that there is a lot of evidence in the Grand Canyon to uh, substantiate what the Bible says about the Earth's history. And one of the one of the issues is that, well, first of all, um, the Park Service shouldn't be taking any particular viewpoint. They should be allowing allowing uh, freedom of expression. And um, we have every right to present our viewpoint, and we do so not in a we do so by presenting the science. And people will argue, well, hello, um, there's a big difference between believing in a global flood only four and a half thousand years ago and an Earth that's only about six or so thousand years old versus millions of years. And so, obviously, there is scientific controversy, but. We have to remember that the evidence we have exists in the present. We don't find rock, rock, rocks with labels on them saying, hi, I'm 100 million years old. We don't have fossils saying, I evolved into this other creature. All we find are the rock layers with the fossils in them. That's all. And so people come to the Grand Canyon, come to the rock layers with assumptions and we're saying that our assumptions are, are, are valid and because the Bible purports or claims to be the word of an eyewitness who was present. God was there. He, he told us what happened. And, in fact, we can test what the Bible says against the evidence. In other words, we can look at what the Bible teaches about the past and then we can go out and see whether the rocks and the fossils fit what the Bible teaches. The, those who believe in a millions of years old earth and billions of years old earth, they weren't there in the past. They're only looking at the evidence. They have assumptions too. And their assumption is that the present is the key to the past, that the processes that we see operating today essentially have been responsible for producing the rock layers in the past. And so it's valid to ask, well, how did the Colorado River carve out the Grand Canyon? If, if the Colorado River is the means by which erosion is occurring today in the Grand Canyon, could it have carved out the Grand Canyon over millions of years? And the interesting thing is that the Colorado River is not carving out the canyon at the moment. Why? Well, the reason we can go down the river and go over rapids is because the Colorado River is not clearing out its channel. Those rapids are produced by flash floods in the side canyons that bring in boulders into the main channel of the Colorado River and impede the flow of the river. Now, at the moment, the, uh, part, the, um, the, the uh, Bureau of Reclamation has released uh, uh, had another one of these high volume releases from Glen Canyon Dam. Normally they only allow between 12 to 20,000 cubic feet per second of water out from the dam down into the Colorado River to maintain its flow. But at the moment they're just doing a couple of days of 36,000 cubic feet per second. And what that does is it stirs up the sand on the bottom of the river, the bed of the river, and when the water level drops, it deposits that back up on the beaches, it renews the beaches, it cleans things out, but it doesn't move the rapids. Even the high volume flows, 100,000 cubic, 100, cubic feet per second of known historical floods before the dams were put in, 
uh, weren't capable of cleaning out the, the river, the, uh, the, the, the channel. So if the Colorado River is not clearing out its channel and eroding out these boulders today, how could it possibly have carved out the Grand Canyon? So this is a way we can test the evidence. The Bible says that all the high hills under the whole of the heaven were covered. Genesis chapter 7 describes the waters rising to cover the hills, and it says that all the high hills under the whole of the heaven were covered, and the mountains were covered. Now, if that statement is true, what evidence would we expect to find? Wouldn't we expect to find that the ocean waters covered the continents? And the answer is we do. We go to the Grand Canyon, and the reason why the Grand Canyon is such a focus is there's very few places in the world where you've got such a deep cut into the earth with the rock layers so well exposed to view. And it's not just the Grand Canyon. You can go north of the Grand Canyon and there's further cliffs where you go further up the rock layer sequence. So you've got this stack of rock layers exposed in the Grand Canyon into the north up through the Zion and Bryce Canyon. And it gives you a very good slice of the geological record. And so what do we find? We find in those layers exposed in the walls of the Grand Canyon, we find marine fossils. That's right, marine fossils. And furthermore, these layers, many of them can be traced right across the continent and even beyond. At the base of the sequence, there's an erosion surface. Everyone agrees that that's an erosion surface. It's called the Great Unconformity. Everything else below that has been eroded off. And we can trace that erosion surface right across North America and to other parts of the world. It's almost a universal global erosion surface. And the first layer sitting on top of that erosion surface in the Grand Canyon is a sandstone. And that sandstone can be traced right across North America, right up into Canada, across to Greenland. We find the same sandstone sitting on the same erosion surface right across North Africa. I can take you to southern Israel in the, in the Negev, and I can show you several locations where this erosion surface is exposed with exactly the same crystalline granite rocks below and the same sandstone above. And, I mean, that's exactly what you'd expect. If a global flood occurred, you'd expect to find marine creatures buried on the continents and in layers that stretch right across continents on a global scale. Um, by the way... The marine fossils are found on the continents. You, the creatures lived on the ocean floor. We don't find them buried on mass or on all the ocean floors. In fact, there's very little sediment on the ocean floors. Underneath, we've got volcanic rock. We haven't got the fossil layers with the marine fossils in them. They're up on the continents. Many of the other layers in the Grand Canyon area uh, such as the Red Wall Limestone, which is a prominent cliff that forms a red wall halfway up the, 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 the cliffs of the, uh, the, the Grand Canyon. That can be traced 
northwards up through Wyoming. It can be traced right across North America. We see it again in the Appalachians. We can see exactly the same limestone with exactly the same fossils in Ireland, in, in Britain. We find it over in Europe and right across to the Himalayas. I mean, that's astounding. Now, the interesting thing is that mainstream geologists are aware of these issues, but they, these, these, these evidences, but they don't connect the dots. You know, we find these billions of marine fossils buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the continents, and these are marine fossils. Another one of the, another one of the layers I can, I can talk about is, um, is the um, chalk beds that we find in, in Europe. Uh, we find them exposed in the cliffs, the white cliffs of Dover and on the southern English Channel coast. We find the same chalk beds stretch right across Europe, right down in the Middle East. We see them exposed in Israel, Kazakhstan, Egypt. The same chalk beds are found in the Midwest and of, of the US from Texas to Nebraska, from Arkansas and Alabama across to Colorado. And, interest, and, and, and we also find the same chalk beds with the same fossils in southern Western Australia. And the chalk is a type of limestone and it's full of marine fossils. In fact, it's made up of tiny little microscopic um, shellfish, trillions of them. But the interesting thing is that the the geologists say that if the present is the key to the past, the present-day analogue for the formation of this chalk is the ooze that we find in the ocean floor today that accumulates at a fraction of an inch every thousand years. Well, there's a problem with that because when we go to Kansas, the chalk in Kansas is called the Nibrera chalk, but it's the same chalk as we find over in England, uh, which which we have these, some of these fossils in England and, and in, in, in Europe. But in the Nebrera chalk in Kansas, not only do we find large fish, that we find fish 10, 12, 14 feet long with other fish swallowed and undigested in their stomachs. We find buried with these large fish, turtles 10 and 12 feet across. We find uh, plesiosaurs, pliosaurs, which are marine reptiles. We find birds and we find dinosaurs. How can we get dinosaurs buried with turtles unless the ocean waters flooded over the continents? And if it was at a fraction of an inch every thousand years, as the present, as the key to the past mentality says, that can't explain burying a fish that's 12 feet long with another fish undigested in its stomach. I mean, that's the other evidence we find. Lots of evidence that fossils had to form rapidly. I mean, how do you form a fossil? Do you, do you leave a dead, dead cow out in the paddock waiting to be covered up slowly, uh, slowly that then becomes a fossil? No. It rots. It's eaten by scavengers. Everyone agrees that you have to bury the creature quickly. Or oh, some people say, oh, but if it's in a putrid environment where there's no oxygen, it, it might survive. No, even in a putrid environment, you've got bacteria 
that don't need oxygen, that feed off the organisms that are, are dead, and they will dis- disintegrate them in no time at, at all. I mean, we find in the fossil record of fish eating fish, fish still undigested in their stomachs. We find uh, fossil wasps. We find fossil flowers. I mean, things that, that normally would disintegrate very rapidly, we find them preserved. We find fossilised footprints. I mean, you leave a footprint on the beach in the sand or in a desert and it's, it's quickly obliterated by the forces at work with the wind and water. It has to have been buried quickly, otherwise it would get obliterated. The interesting thing is, and we see this in the Grand Canyon as well, as we go up the, the, the record, we find at the base only marine fossils. And then as we go higher up in the walls of the Grand Canyon, we don't find any land animals, but we first of all find the footprints of land animals. We don't find their bodies preserved until higher in the record. How is it that you would have creatures leaving their footprints and then the same creatures being buried millions of years later? It makes more sense if there was only days or weeks at the very most between the footprints being left and the creatures being buried. It makes sense if you've got a tidal oscillation You'd have the tides during a global flood with high tide and low tide. You're also going to have earthquakes that cause tsunamis. So water levels are going to rise and they're going to fall. Animals get swept away. They're swimming in the water. The water level drops. They find some exposed mud or sand. They leave their footprints. And then the next surge of water bringing in sediment buries their footprints and preserves them, picks them up, carries them away, and then... Subsequently, they expire and die and are buried in layers above that. And we see that repeatedly in the fossil record. We find the footprints of birds before, before we find their, their fossils. I mean, how do you fossilise a bird slowly? It has to have fallen out of the sky and been covered up very, very, very rapidly. So these are the, these are the evidences that we see in, in the canyon. Now, I've also looked at uh, one of the projects I did uh, was involved in using radiometric dating, that is radioactive elements in the rocks, which the geologists use to date rocks at millions and millions of years. And so often what they do is they'll take samples of a particular rock unit and they'll subject it to only one of the methods because there's a number of them. There's uranium decays to lead and there's potassium that decays to argon. There's rubidium that decays to strontium. Now, according to the theory of the the methods, how they're supposed to work is that when, say, a volcanic eruption occurs, then the molten rock starts to cool and crystallise these radioactive elements get locked into the crystals, but the, the product, the daughter product elements, are not in the crystals until after the rock solidifies and the, the parent elements, the uranium and the potassium and the rubidium, start decaying to lead, to argon and to strontium. And so the idea is that no matter which clock you chose, they all started at time zero with only the parent, 
or, or an amount that we know of, we can figure out, and and then in time you're going to increase the amount of daughter. So today we can we can it's like the sand grains falling the top of a an hourglass from the top to the bottom. Okay, you've got an hourglass. The atom sand sand grains at the top fall, and in an hour they all get to the bottom. Well, if you come in halfway through the process, half the grains are at the top and half are at the bottom. So it's like that. The geologists measure how many how many grains top sand grains there are, how many bottom sand grains, parent daughter, to figure. And if they know the rate at which the decay process occurs today then they can back calculate to the time when the process started. Well, okay. we decided uh, the, to... The, the, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, Dr. Selling. We're up against the... Uh, right. the, the I'm, I'm, we're up against the break here. Uh, okay, then, no uh, problem. We can come back to it again in a moment. Yeah, three, but three minutes is all. This is fascinating, and I'm looking at this like an investigator, my profession as an investigator, Dr. Mm-hmm. Snelling is laying out for you, ladies and gentlemen, the, to me, in, in my vernacular, the forensic evidence that the Bible and the God in the Bible, and the, the Bible is accurate, the God in the Bible spoke in the Bible, and what, what, you're, what you're seeing, what he's presenting to you, is evidence to support the authenticity of the Bible. Folks, we're right back. Stay right where you're at. Thursday edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. We are joined by the men from Answers in Genesis. That's AnswersInGenesis.org. Our guest right now is Dr. Andrew Snelling. He's a geologist, and we're going to jump right back into it. Mr. Snelling, we have about 10 minutes uh, until the next guest, Dr. Nathaniel uh, Jensen, comes on. So go ahead and continue, please. Yeah, yeah. I was telling you about the radioactive dating methods, and basically the theory says that uh, they should all give you the same date on a rock, no matter which method you use. So we decided to test that in the Grand Canyon, and uh, we, we, we chose four different rock units, and we found when we got the results that they all the different methods all gave different results. In fact, uh, one volcanic rock unit gave an age of 516 million years by the potassium argon method, an age of 1,111 million years by the rubidium strontium method, and an age of 1,588 million years by another method. So one method was three times the age of the other. And the other interesting thing is all the methods gave different results on the same rock units, on the same samples, and uh, yet there was a systematic pattern that indicated that nuclear decay rates may well have been faster in the past uh, during a catastrophic event, and that fits with the, the biblical account of the flood. We are also suspect of the, the methodology for the radioactive dating because there are volcanoes in the western Grand Canyon that erupted so recently the lavas flowed down the walls of the canyon 
and temporarily blocked the Colorado River. Those lavas, there's remnants of them there today, and you can still see the volcanic cones on the rim. Uh, those lavas give an age by rubidium strontium of the same 1,143 million years compared to the ancient lava flows in the other end of the Grand Canyon that are right down the bottom. They give you the same rubidium strontium age. And yet, so why should the youngest volcanic rocks in the Grand Canyon give you the same rubidium strontium age as the oldest rocks in the Grand Canyon? The answer is they came from the same source and the rubidium strontium is a measure of the composition of the source, not the age of the rock. So this is, this is what's so fascinating about this whole debate is that we can point to lots of evidence that shows problems with the dating methods, uh, with how the rock layers formed. Um, one of the points of controversy in the canyon is a rock layer that's near the top of the canyon called the Kokunino sandstone. And it, it is a, a, a whitish colored sandstone unit and within the horizontal bed that goes for mile after mile through the canyon, we see these sloping patterns, sloping lines within the sandstone. Everyone agrees that these are remnants of the way the sandstone was deposited. The, the conventional wisdom is that it was deposited by sand dunes, that is, sand in a desert where the wind blows and heaps it up into, into dunes and the sand falls over the top as the wind blows it over the top and you get these slopes. Well, those lines in the sandstone are the fossilised slopes of those dunes. Well, the same sort of thing can happen underwater. In fact, if you go, if you were to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, and I don't recommend it, but if you, if you went down with scuba diving under the Golden Gate Bridge, you'll find the sand on the bottom of the channel there is heaped up by the current coming in from the Pacific Ocean into San Francisco Bay. It heats up and moves the sand into underwater sand waves. Now, the interesting thing is the slope that's caused by the advancement of a dune underwater is different to the slope with a dune being advanced under air. In air, the slope at the front is always between 30 and 34 degrees, whereas underwater, it's usually around 25 degrees or less. And so here we can set up an empirical test. How was this sandstone in the Grand Canyon deposited? Was it in air, by, by in a desert environment? <clears throat> Which, of course, the conventional community says, ah, a desert. You couldn't have a desert during a global flood. But we say, no, the evidence points to water deposition. Let's go and measure the angles. If these angles of these sloping layers within the sandstone are 30 to 34 degrees, that must have been in the desert. If it's 25 degrees or less, it must have been underwater. Well, you know what? You go out there, and one of my friends uh, who's a, a geology professor at Cedarville University, he and his students have been measuring several hundreds of these angles in different parts of the canyon, in different parts of the region, in the sandstone. And you almost invariably always, it's 25 degrees or even as low as 15 degrees. And yet this has been in the literature way back in 1938 and 48. There were, there's records of measurements that, that, 
that give you the same answer. Yet the sad thing is, in this book that's now being promoted in the in the national park by presenting the the long ages view, they're claiming the angles point to a desert dune, and we're challenging these guys go out and measure the angles because we've done that and seen their own literature that the angles are at the angle of which you get water deposition. Now the interesting thing is we can also from laboratory experiments and from observing these underwater waves, sand waves that we find them in Long Island Sound as well off New York you can actually work out the water currents and the water depths that would be responsible for moving the sand along in those waves. And when you do the math, you can show that this sandstone bed in the Grand Canyon would have formed in a matter of days to weeks at the very most. And this sandstone bed is being traced not only around the Grand Canyon area, you can trace it all the way up to the Canadian border and, uh, and, and further east into Kansas, Oklahoma and elsewhere. It covers an area of nearly, um, uh, nearly a million square uh, square miles. It's incredible the amount of sand, and yet it, the evidence internally within this sandstone indicates that it would have been deposited rapidly. And that's, so, that's totally yeah. consistent with a, with a global flood. So wow. that's, why, that's why we um, we are disappointed that the Park Service is not giving us the opportunity for our materials to be made available to people in the park so that they can see what the evidence decide for themselves between the two viewpoints as to how the, the layers in the canyon form and how the, how, the coral, how the canyon itself was carved out. You know, as we as we um, prepare for the next guest, uh, Dr. Jensen, uh, uh, you just laid out the science, I mean, through your research, um, top-notch research, you just laid out the um, and via answers in Genesis, laid out the fact that what we've been told, you've proved what we've been told and taught and even advertised uh, through the materials is a lie. And you have the truth, and they're saying, no, we're going to go with our version instead. But you as a scientist, accredited, high-ranking, A-list scientist, you say, no, this is what the science shows. And it just shows you what people's beliefs will do, how their beliefs will stop them looking at the evidence and properly assessing the evidence. Hmm. Okay. And, and this is not something that, I mean, and, and um, all right, where, where can people find your specific work, Dr. Snelling? Where? Uh, AnswersInGenesis.org. Um, yes, on our website, yes, there's resources there. If they if they look on my name, they'll actually find there's DVD presentations. There's also a two-volume book called Earth's Catastrophic Past, uh, Geology, Creation, and the Flood. And that's my wow. primary work where I lay out all these evidences in the canyon and elsewhere around the world, deal with all these sorts of issues, evidence that the world is in fact young, not the millions of years that we've been taught. Isn't that isn't that great? And, and I've heard this before, just never as succinct as you have 
made it. And, and uh, bravo to a, the, the brilliant uh, presentation well, on this. Well, thanks for giving us the opportunity to share this with your listeners. God, God bless you, Dr. Absolutely. Snelly. I mean, fantastic. Thank you so very, very much. It's a pleasure. And, thanks for the opportunity. Man, wow. Well, thank you. Okay, folks, uh, that was Dr. Uh, Dr. Selling, answers in Genesis.org. That alone, just that slice of, w- w- again, I'm an investigator, so I look at, at, at the entire world, we'll say, and specifically, as he was talking about the Grand Canyon as a crime scene. And the forensic evidence, which he brought forth to me, verifies, validates the, con- well, I, I don't want to, I don't want to sound demeaning to the Bible. The, the, if the Bible was a statement, a witness statement, or a a statement that uh, verifies that statement, and you need that, something well, we don't need it. We've got faith, but uh, when you're talking to an atheist or agnostic or someone who does, who's just out to lunch, there it is. That's just one aspect of this, and this is such a tremendous, well-needed program. We're taking a break, of course, from the from the insanity that that's out there with respect to the elections to talk about something that will enrich us intellectually, enrich us, and is enriching us. And this is great. Next, we have up uh, Dr. Jensen, Dr. Nathan Jensen, Jensen. a biologist. Jensen, Jensen I'm sorry, um, a biologist with. Uh, Answers in Genesis dot org, and my computer. I had to restart it. So we want to thank too, sure uh, a- a- Larry Ross uh, uh, Communications, as well as J- John Robertson for setting this up. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, do, do we have? Uh, do we have? Mr. Mr. Jameson, are you there? Yes. Yes, I'm here. All right. Perfect. And we apologize for mispronouncing your name. It's it's Jameson, correct? Yes, sir. I respond to many things, so it's no problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the Hagman and Hagman Report. Uh, just if you want to give you give a, a brief introduction of yourself, and we're going to let you take this in presentation form at the top of the hour. We've got about a three-minute break, but uh, the next 40 minutes is yours in uh, uh, to take us where you want. So just open up with a little bit about yourself, and, of course, that can be found at AnswersInGenesis.org, but uh, just introduce yourself to our audience, please. I grew up in a Christian, I could say, creationist home. I was homeschooled through eighth grade, and when I went off to high school, there were three Christian school options in my area, only one of which taught the view that I hold to currently and the view of the organization I have. So I've known the creationist position from an early age, but I'd say I also have known the evolutionary position from an early age because what organizations like Answers in Genesis do and ha- have done for so many years is teach you both sides so that you see the flaws of evolution so that when kids like myself go off to college, when I went off to college, it won't be a shock to hear it for the first time, but have answers ready for professors who pose questions, for classmates who pose questions. And so when I went off to undergraduate college, a secular college, and uh, Wisconsin University of Wisconsin Parkside was prepared. Biology 101, 102 could take the questions to the professor, wasn't surprised by it, and there wasn't ever really a crisis of faith because everything that I heard was stuff I had been been prepared for ahead of time. Went off to Harvard, did a Ph.D. in biology, uh, graduated in 2009, and joined a different creationist organization, the Institute for Creation Research, founded by Henry Morris. He and Whitcomb, John Whitcomb, wrote the book, The Genesis Flood, that Many view as the catalyst for the modern young earth creation movement back in 1961, and I joined Answers in Genesis and the Creation Museum about a year ago. Thank you for that. All right, wow. So, so yeah, you're just a nobody. Yeah, 
<laughs> just as just a guy with an opinion. <laughs> no, uh, I, I, again, I, it's amazing to me that, uh, um, and in a course setting too, it's amazing sometimes you can get, uh, uh, scientists for hire. You, you know, if, if you've got a, an agenda to push, you, you can buy a scientist. But in this case, not so much because you've got uh, a number of things behind you as well. Okay. So answers in Genesis. What is your part in this? Um, and, and what's your specific area of, well, just go ahead and, and, and take it. it, it Presentation style. So I'd say the major creationist organizations have several arms to them. Uh, there's an educational arm and various organizations take different approaches to that. Like when I was at the Institute for Creation Research, we had, they were offering Masters of Christian Education to take a little bit more of an academic approach. Answers in Genesis, of course, has the Creation Museum, now the Ark Encounter, to reach the larger populace. The Creation Museum largely targets, uh, probably more of a believing audience who don't yet see the relevance of Genesis and why it matters to their faith, why it matters to the integrity of Scripture, why it matters to salvation and other really big issues to a Christian, whereas the Ark Encounter is, we've sort of stripped down the Christianese to reach out and engage those who have never heard of this before or heard of it growing up and have rejected it and, and have never really thought hard about it to engage them where they're at and to get them to think and, and to educate them along the way and to, to get them to dig deeper. So that's that's one arm, an educational arm. Uh, there's there's a branch of that as well in, in, in our speaking engagements going around the country, on weekend conferences and churches, uh, or other, part of other bigger conferences. And there's a research arm, which is really my primary role here, behind the scenes. And I'd say that there's two motivations for what I do. One is science is always changing, and so the evolutionists and our opponents are continually coming up with new ways to try to buttress their ideas or to undermine Genesis, and those really go hand in hand. And so to keep up to date with what they're saying and to be relevant so that the people we're educating and and ministering to are prepared so that people like me, the the next generation, can go off to college and be prepared for what they're about to hear in, in the classroom. And the second part of that is while we start with Scripture, there are many things the Scripture doesn't say. The Bible doesn't say exactly what God created in Genesis 1. It uses the term kind, uh, but we can get from Genesis chapter 6 a little bit of a sense for what a kind might be, some, some criteria for identifying it. For example, Noah's told to take male and female on board the ark for the purpose of them reproducing after the flood. So if we, if we can find creatures that are reproductively compatible, that might identify what what species even are part of the same kind. So one reason for doing research is to, to keep up to date, to have ready answers for the new attacks that come up. And secondly, is to fill in the blanks, so to speak, to to investigate areas in which Scripture is silent. And my training specifically is in biology and heavily in genetics, at least that's the research I'm doing right now. And the question I'm focusing on primarily is really the question that started the entire debate. So when Darwin wrote his book, it was on the origin of species. That was his goal, to explain where species came from. In 1859, over 150 years ago, the context in which he lived, the scientific context, largely viewed species as static entities. And you can see, when you think about it, where this idea might come from. If you reflect on it, you can see that species have a a very good fit with their environments. Take polar bears. They have a white coat. They have all sorts of aspects of their biology that make them well-suited to the Arctic. 
and Arctic foxes, Arctic hares, you know, they blend, they're white coats, they blend in very well, predator-prey relationships. They fit that Arctic environment It's as if they were designed to live there. And if you move further south, bears, foxes, rabbits change. You got black bears in North America, red fox in, in Eurasia, basically Europe and Asia. Uh, rabbits, of course, all over the world of different colors. They're not white because they're not primarily in a snowy environment. Instead, they fit the environments in which they live in very well. So, again, that you, you reflect on that for a few minutes. And you think, well, maybe they were designed for this. Maybe they were made for this environment. So the views of Darwin say were that God created each species in its current environment to, to, to explain why they fit so well. And Darwin came, came along and basically tried to repudiate all that. He rejected not only this idea that, they were, that their environments were fixed and unchanging, but so he said they migrated to their current locations, but then, of course, also said all species go back to a common ancestor. And that's what was so revolutionary. So... What many people don't realize is he never had any direct data to answer his question. You think about the origin of species, what are species? I mentioned a few examples, polar bears, Arctic foxes, Arctic hares. Well, what is a species? It's basically a group of distinct creatures that we recognize, and we recognize them by their features. The polar bear is white for the Arctic fox is white for the Arctic hare is white for, and so forth. Well, the reason that there's a whole bunch of them that we can recognize is because those traits are preserved. A polar bear reproduces and it produces more polar bears. Arctic foxes produce Arctic foxes. Humans produce humans. There's this consistency generation after generation. So really, if you're asking what's the origin of species, you're asking what's the origin of those traits that are consistent from generation to generation. That's a question of inheritance and inheritance is recorded directly in only one scientific field. Anatomy and physiology doesn't record it. Fossils don't record it. Geography doesn't record it. Only genetics does, which we now know to be the, uh, it, the, the genetic code for us is in our DNA. Well, in 1859, right. no one had the slightest idea what the physical basis for heredity was. The observations that Gregor Mendel, the Austrian monk, made that begin most genetics textbooks. He didn't publish his results until 1865, 1866, depending on which, which source you consult. That's the start of most genetic textbooks, and all Gregor Mendel did, it was, it was a monstrous undertaking. He, he, he made massive observations with pea plants, but really all he did was say, this is how traits behave consistently in a mathematically predictable way. We didn't trace that to the molecule DNA really until 100 years later. So long after Darwin mm. died, the scientific community for the first time in 1953 recognized DNA as the substance of heredity. This is where a creature's inheritable traits, that's the means by which they're passed on. And then, of course, it would take another several decades to get the DNA sequence, the letter-by-letter the letter code for our arms, legs, hair, so forth for, for each creature. For example, the human DNA sequence wasn't discovered until 2001 recently, and the human DNA is, is the best studied genetic species, the, be, the best studied species at the genetic level on the planet, so you can, you can see just how recent the genetic data for a whole bunch of species has been, so think about that. Yeah, 15 years, 15 years, that's all, 15 years. We haven't had, yep, we haven't had the direct scientific data 
to evaluate the origin of traits, which means the origin of species, until really right now. So that's the research I'm doing, really revisiting Darwin's original question with direct data for the first time. Wow. Okay. we we got about two minutes to the top, or four minutes to the top of the hour. Uh, so, okay. Yeah, wow. You, uh, you just said, like, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, <laughs> my, my daughter, who's, who's really big into biology and zoology, um, is listening intently, and, uh, wow. Okay, so, so what you, what you, what you are, what you're saying is, no evolution, obviously. This is not evolution. And I, look, I'm not the brightest bulb here. Um, if you were to summarize what you just said in a, in, in a couple of sentences, how, how would you how would you articulate that? Because I know what I want to say, but I don't think I could say it as eloquently as you. I would say that many people don't realize Darwin, Darwin took a gigantic scientific risk when he wrote The Origin of Species. And I don't mean the scientific risk that every scientist takes, because the scientific method is you take a guess, and then you do experiments to see if you're right or wrong. Every scientist takes a risk. But in this case, Darwin took a guess. He gathered indirect data. He then argued very vigorously for his conclusions 150 years before he'd have any direct data to say yay or nay. That's wow. something the evolutionist will not want to talk about too much, because if you say, oh, Darwin took a risk, what you're basically admitting is the last 150 years we've been arguing about side issues. When, of course, the narrative we're supposed to be taught is Darwin established the evolutionary model 150 years ago, and no one's questioned it since. You could say what the area of argument is are red herrings. I mean, it's... And, I, and I'm understanding this a, a little bit better. And I think, you know, folks, listen to what what, uh, what this gentleman is saying here with respect to uh, Darwin. And uh, it's, it's, it's almost, it's pushing a religion via, I guess, you know, the theory of evolution or the religion of evolution via Darwinism. And, uh, of course, you know, folks, uh, We've had uh, Paul McGuire on to talk about uh, how Darwin fits into the model of the non-biblical worldview in which we in which we are having it thrust down our throats. Uh, and, and you're doing a very good job. Um, so everything that we've been told is based on a guess, but it's presented as fact. Everything we've been told via Darwin, based on a guess, presented as fact, and taught as doctrine. But yet, but yet, your research has shown that it's the biblical account of creation, and not the Darwinian account of evolution. Yes, and what they're presenting as fact is a indirectly is an argument supported by indirect data. When in fact, you know, really, Darwin threw out a hypothesis 150 years ago, and it's been a hypothesis for 150 years, and now we can finally evaluate it for, for the first time. And, and this go and and and, you, and and this goes to Genesis answers in Genesis and folks, that's the website for Dr. Jensen answers in Genesis dot org. But the answers in Genesis, which you just the the information that you provided, the species information, uh, fall, uh, preceded by of course Dr. Snelling's uh, geographic information, 
now we are the totality of, of, of evidence, not that we need supporting evidence to, to verify the authenticity of the, uh, of the Holy Bible, but when you are in, uh, when you're fighting these, these doctrines, these false doctrines, when you're fighting these facts or things that are presented as facts in, uh, Yale and, and Harvard and all these schools of higher learning, these are the people who have the answers that will allow you to refute the false doctrines of these big league universities and the perversion of not just our faith but of our worldview. Folks, you're listening to the Hagman and Hagman Report. What a great, what a, what a refreshing, <laughs> and I mean refreshing, uh, change here away from the elections to talk about this very important topic. Three minutes, we're going to be right back with more from Dr. Jensen. Stay right where you're at. to the Hagman and Hagman Report. You know, enough of the election business for right now. We'll be getting that tomorrow as we talk to Stuart Rhodes and others, but this is important. This is an important dot-connecting exercise for Christians and even non-Christians out there, if you're listening, if there are any. And even for the Christians listening, uh, uh, the expertise here that is gathered behind these microphones, you would have to pay big bucks and I mean this, big bucks to really listen in, sit on a lecture like this. Um, Dr. Nathaniel Jens, uh, Jensen is, is our current guest, and we're going to have another doctor come on uh, here at, in about 20 minutes. So I really don't want to take too much away from Dr. Jensen. Um, but I do have a question. Um, Dr. Nathaniel Jensen is our guest from AnswersInGenesis.org. I have a question. My daughter, who, who was working uh, with uh with zoo animals, uh, biology slash zoology, her area of expertise. And she was the only one in her group who did not believe, or she was very vocal about the, uh, about not believing in Darwinism, not believing in evolution as it's being taught. And she asked me to ask you a question if this is the right time, and if not, feel free just sure. to. Sure. Okay. But she said, uh, one of the biggest arguments there in her workplace when she was working there was the there's there's so many theories um everyone had a theory you know a, a man for example uh was was evolved from a fish or evolved from some primordial soup or evolved from uh, you know frogs i i mean or monkeys um what was your question Jackie yeah Oh, how did all those originate? How did the differences originate? Um, you know, by by different scientists or the different views or the different species? Just so I understand your question correctly. The, uh, the different views of the or you know, man came from uh, the evolution of, of, of from an ape, or you know, which which begs for the missing link, that big thing, uh, or or from the, some primordial soup man came from. Uh, so many different origins of man how did all of these views 
not 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 the species, but the views come into come into play. The impression I've gotten from the current state of the academic world that I try to keep up with and that I swam in is that they today try to keep a fairly consistent narrative and it's layered and nuanced but essentially they say humans the closest relative of humans the closest living relative of humans would be the great apes chimpanzees, orangutans, gorillas that we shared a ancestor with him that, that if you go beyond, if you, if you expand the human family tree back to the first humans and beyond what's, what was the ancestor of the first humans in the evolutionary model, that would take you back to a proto-human, a proto-ape man that had characteristics both of apes and of humans. And that chimpanzees, orangutans, gorillas, humans all evolved from that common ancestor. So they'd say in the more recent past, we had sort of a primate in our family tree. If you go back further in time, that shared a common ancestor with the rest of the mammals, kangaroos, elephants, giraffes, they all go back to, a, and, and primates and humans, they'd say, all go back to a common mammal ancestor. And then you trace that back further to a common ancestor with reptiles, amphibians, birds. Of course, they'd say dinosaurs and birds are very closely related. You trace that back further to a common ancestor with fish. And so there's this long chain by which they tie all the species on Earth together, which is one of Darwin's main points in his book. And they've gotcha. refined some of that relative relationship using newer techniques and as, as new species have been discovered. What, what was also rather shocking to me is as, as I've been researching this myself, it looks like the majority of species that we know today were unknown in Darwin's day. So here's a guy writing a book on the origin of species, huh. and half of what is to be discovered, uh, long, you know, before half of the known species diversity is discovered. So another interesting well, element of his risk as he writes his thesis. Absolutely fascinating, and thank you for entertaining that question. And in terms of the uh, you know coming ex mother in law side, um, I'm just, no, I'm sorry, I'm kidding. Thank you for entertaining that question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and now that I've com- we've completely knocked you off your uh, uh, off your tra- track, there, go ahead and feel free to continue because you, you were talking about the uh, the um, um, the well, a little uh, that wasn't too far off. But go ahead and continue, sir. We can we can go right into human origins because that's one of the like I said the the human genetic sequence is one of the best studied of all species on the planet primarily because it's NIH money that funds it and we're interested in curing disease and there's a lot of genetic component to what's going on. And so we have sequences, DNA sequences from tens of thousands of people now uh, from ethnic groups around the globe. And this, this, again, gives us, from a scientific perspective, the first real opportunity to directly investigate our ancestry. The human sequence was one of the, the first human sequence was put together 2001. I don't remember which individual they got it from. Uh, the first chimpanzee sequence, which they'd say is our closest relative, 2005, and there have been thousands of individual human sequences done since then from San people in 
uh, Southwest Africa, to Asian people groups, to European people groups. I think there's 10,000 British individuals alone that have DNA sequences. Native American people groups, uh, Australian Aborigines, Great Adam and East peoples, all around the globe. So now we can begin to map out who originated and when. And one of the first things you see when you look at these data is that the Africans tend to have more genetic differences, more genetic diversity than the non-African people groups do. Evolutionists see this as a confirmation of their predictions from the fossil record. They said we find the first proto-human fossils, basically the ancestors of modern humans in Africa. So, look, confirmation. Evolution is a coherent scientific model, makes predictions, it's correct. The most genetic diversity is in Africa. It's, it's as if they've been around longer. And here's the, here's the genetic background to that. So the, the, the DNA sequence is really the instruction manual for our body that says 10 fingers, 10 toes, two arms, two legs, and so forth. But that code is passed on imperfectly. The instruction manual, if, you, if you're thinking of copying by, you know, on the keyboard in instruction manual, there's typos that are made. They're a tiny fraction. Let's say there's uh, 6 billion letters in this book of instructions, only about 60 on average are mutated. They, they, they are mistakes. So it's a tiny fraction of the whole. But these accumulate with time. This is what, well, you would probably know, this is what forensic scientists use then to try to trace ancestry. Your genetic similarities and differences will be closest to your immediate relatives, and you'll be more genetically different from more distant relatives, and, and so on and so forth. And you just kind of trace that principle backwards. The evolutionists do that. And so if you go bar back far enough, maybe you can trace it to the chimpanzee ancestor and, and tie human and primate ancestry together. For the immediate concern, of course, they say if you go back, you can tie non-African ancestry, non-African people groups together first, then the Africans, therefore the Africans are the most ancient, they evolve first. Genetics confirms what we've said all along. One thing I've been researching and reevaluating. One of the biggest questions, of course, in all these studies is what assumptions are they using? And one of the assumptions they've made is when, they, when they're analyzing the genetics, they're treating all people groups as behaving in the same way. So let's, let's do a little thought experiment. Uh, let's try to make a little prediction. Let's say there's 60 mistakes per generation, and 100 generations pass. How many mistakes will there be have been accumulated from that first generation to the last? Well, 600 times 60, 600 mistakes. And if you know how long each generation is, you can say, well, in this many years, let's say it's 20 years per generation, then uh, times 100, excuse me, I'm not doing the math right. It's 6,000 mistakes, 2,000 years. Get the math right here. I'm just a biologist, right? Can't do math. <laughs> anyway, uh, the point being you can, you can predict over certain periods of time how many DNA mistakes should accumulate. And one of the things the evolutionists assume, we don't have the genealogical histories, the, the written documents of parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, the ancestors of every person who's ever lived. So you have to make some assumptions. You have, and basically, evolutionists tend to assume that the generation time in each family group is the same, that everyone tends to marry on average and have children around age 25. Well, there's data from the UN from 1976 that says, and this, this is by country, and this is data I've handled and published, there's data from, by nation now, uh, that, that tracked 
the age of each parent uh, when they married. And on average, and among women, I was, I was looking at a particular DNA sequence that was inherited through the maternal line. And, I, and in this case, again, this is uh, the DNA is, there's more DNA differences in Africa than outside of Africa. Well, lo and behold, this UN data said African women, about a third of African women were married by ages 15 to 19. Outside of Africa, only about 11%, 12%. So bring this full circle, evolutionists dive into the human genetic code, they see more differences in Africans, they immediately jump to the conclusion that there must be, Africans must have evolved first, just as they predicted, but you say, hold on, you're assuming that everyone marries at the same age, that the number of generations that have passed in the last few thousand years is the same in Africans and non-Africans, when in fact, if that data from 1976 has been true historically, the Africans marry earlier which means in a set amount of time, they will go through more generations than non-Africans, which means they will have more DNA mistakes that accumulate. So that's just one element of our own history that we're beginning to unpack. Think about yeah, the bigger question about, th think about the bigger question of humans and chimpanzees. Here's a figure that's often tossed around, uh, and it's tossed around worldwide. I had a German TV crew come and interview me uh, a couple months ago, and they decided to figure, well, aren't we 1% different from the chimpanzee at the genetic level? And you hear that number, 1% different, you think, man, it sounds like we're kissing cousins. What, right. what more evidence would you need? Well, it turns out, and actually this is not data that creationists have generated per se, if you read the fine print in the 2005 announcement of the chimpanzee DNA sequence, the 1% figure comes from a subset of the comparisons. Basically what they did is they, they got the DNA sequence for chimpanzee, they electronically compared it using algorithms to, to search human DNA, they compared the electronic sequence for chimpanzee to the electronic sequence for human, whatever matched, then they took and searched back on chimpanzee, and so after this back and forth reciprocal searching electronically, whatever fell out of that, that's what they used. And what that subset of data, is where they get that 1% figure. What many people don't know is that there was about 11% of the data that was left out. Just because there was either no match in human, there was, there was chunks of chimpanzee DNA that didn't have any match in human, and chunks of human that didn't have any match in chimpanzee, those are just left out of the analysis when they're calculating their 1%. <laughs> so you can, that immediately raises a question, what's that 11% doing? Again, 1%, 11%, it might sound pretty close, but once we get to the math, it, the significance becomes clear very quickly. One of my colleagues, Jeff Tompkins at the Institute for Creation Research, has been himself, we, they built a pretty large server there at ICR to do this sort of work, has himself downloaded the raw data and used other algorithms to try to repeat this, to say, let's, let's not throw out any data, let's include all of it so that we have a real number, and he gets a similar number of about 11% difference. Well, what does that mean practically? 1%, 11%, still close. I threw out a number earlier, 6 billion. There's 6 billion letters total, uh, and a similar number of DNA letters in, in chimpanzee. Actually, we often, there's a, there's a technical term we use that we, do, we talk about the... Uh, the haploid amount of DNA, that's just a technical term for half that DNA, we often, for, for reasons I won't get into, we use 3 billion instead, typically. So I'll use that. 11% difference works out to about 300 to 400 million DNA letter differences between us and the chimpanzee. So part of the evolutionist's strategy, I think, in trying to 
convince so many people that evolution is true is not only selectively choosing which data you analyze, but of course choosing how you report it. 1% difference sounds fantastic. In terms of raw numbers, that's still tens of millions of DNA letters different. And in fact, once you realize that it's even more than that, it's 11%, there's 300, 400 million differences between us and the chimpanzee. You, you chew on that, you repeat that to yourself several times, and you, you begin to realize there's a gigantic genetic gap between us and our supposed evolutionary cousins. A gap too big, I think, for evolution to bridge. So modern genetics is revealing the limits of our ancestry. It's pointing to humans having an ancestry going back to Adam and Eve, and in fact, some of the work I've been doing, along with a collaborator, Rob Carter from Creation Ministries International, uh, taking this global DNA differences, not just the Africans, not just the non-Africans, but all of them, and saying, can we dial this back to two people? And long story short, yes, we can. That makes testable predictions. We can confirm those predictions. It predicts the rates of change. It predicts the rates of other types of genetic change. It's a very robust, uh, well-established scientific model we've published on this. there's, there's a big genetic gap between us and the chimpanzees, as well as between us and the orangutan and, and gorilla. And, of course, it just gets bigger when you go to even okay. more different uh, species. D- 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 doctor, if I, can, if I can ask this question, because this, and can you trace it back to two people? I, and I get that question. One of the questions I hear all the time, well, that can't be just two people, because, after all, I mean, not to be crass here, but the sex, you know, you got to think of the procreation. Wouldn't there be uh, some ugly stuff taking place here? Now, I'm not talking about the social convention. I'm talking about the genetic aspect of things. Yeah. And yeah how, and this, how do you answer that? There's a very good genetic answer for it. It goes back to Gregor Mendel. One of the things he discovered, so I'll, I'll walk through his experiment because I think it, it illustrates what's going on in the unseen world. He, he didn't have any microscopes to deal with, he just looked at pea plants. And some of them had yellow seeds, some had green seeds. If you, if you cross yellow to green, if you, if you cross purebred yellow to purebred green, all the offspring have yellow seeds. And if that's where the experiment stopped, you might say, oh, well, I guess the green, the information for green got extinguished. It, it was destroyed or who knows what happened. Well, if you intercross those yellow offspring to one another, about a fourth of the offspring are green and three-fourths are yellow. So green reappears. So what Gregor Mendel showed is that genetic information can be hidden because each parent makes a contribution to offspring. There's something that happens at the microscopic level where some information gets hidden, some gets exposed, and so there can be latent genetic diversity that leads to latent traits. He's looking at one trait, seed color. You apply this now to humans. There's... The number of traits that define our facial features, our height, our weight, all this sort of thing that is mind-boggling. Use a, use a more familiar example of red hair. Red hair is something more like green seed color. Uh, it can be hidden and reappears. It's, it's not dominant. The yellow seed color was dominant over green. It tends to always show up, even if there's some other genetic information present. The green tends to be hidden. Same thing with red hair. So... Genetic information can be hidden. Adam and Eve would have been created. This is really the research we've been doing using these individual DNA sequences to trace it back. It looks like God created Adam and Eve with DNA differences from the start. In other words, it it looks like God created Adam and Eve with the appearance of having had two parents. We we have two different copies of our DNA because one copy comes from mom, one copy comes from dad, and they're typically unrelated. And so 
to our best knowledge, and so we get two different versions of DNA. Well, Adam and Eve would have been created with two different versions, but God would have created it perfect, and that would have led to diversity in their offspring. Now, and that back to your makes question sense. About the, okay, thank you for that. But go on. Continue. The question that arises, but they were closely related, and when we see two closely related people today, even though they're passing on two different copies, there tends to be mutants or weird abnormalities, or maybe they're even infertile because they can't even produce a viable baby. So wouldn't that have happened with Adam and Eve? This then gets to the question of what's the function of these DNA differences. Today, we can see very clearly the effects of 6,000 years of mutation and mistakes. Cystic fibrosis can be traced to a very specific DNA change. Sickle cell anemia, you can trace to a very specific DNA change. This is part of the reason that humans are the best studied at the genetic level, the best studied species on the planet because the scientific community is recognizing there is a whole lot of mistakes that have happened and a lot of our diseases might be traced to the genetic level. And we need to understand the genetics of our global population to try to get at cause-effect relationships and hopefully then to solutions. So today, if brother, sister, Mary, they will have inherited DNA from the same parents, but those parents will have in their DNA mistakes, the result of 6,000 years' worth of mistakes. And so... Brother and Sister Mary, there's a good chance they have inherited the same errors from their parents. Now, back to Gregor Mendel, some information can be hidden. And fortunately, many of the mistakes that we harbor are hidden by the remaining good copy. So what intermarriage today does is bring two bad copies into the offspring. If you marry someone who's not a close relative, there's a good chance you have different mistakes. And so all this error that's been occurring in the last 6,000 years gets masked and hidden and offspring are apparently normal. When two people marry today, they've accumulated all these different mistakes, and so instead of passing on two very different copies of DNA to offspring, they're passing on two very similar copies, too similar in that they have some of the same mistakes. Adam and Eve, now dialing back to the beginning, Adam and Eve would have been created with perfect DNA, no mutations. God would have created functional DNA differences. That's been degrading ever since then, and so for their offspring to intermarry, it doesn't matter if they get some of the same DNA because it's not it's it's nearly mistake free. Only later on, so I think whatever a couple thousand years later, to Moses, once you've had generation after generation of mistakes, does God prohibit close marriages? And I think for good genetic reason. That 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 is the most coherent, understandable. Thankfully, I mean, thank you for saying for explaining that to me. Folks, you're going to want to you're going to want to go back and listen to what uh, what Dr. Jensen explained here. I mean, I to me that this is one of the most important answers. That um, I, I don't know. This is important to me, Joe. I, the, the, now, I mean, when you when you when you said the light bulb went off and you said God created Adam and Eve as if there were he had two they had two sets of parents. That. Right, that started the wheels in motion. Now that makes sense. I've never heard it explained like that. Yeah, and folks, we're talking with Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, Jen, uh, and what we planned on doing is is uh, dropping him off at 20 minutes after. We're going to hold him over till the break, and then bring on uh, Terry Mortensen from uh, in our final segment after the break. Uh, any closing thought? Closing thoughts, Dr. Jensen? 
What I've just explained for humans looks like it applies around the globe to various species. In other words, it looks like God created, when he created the kinds in the beginning, it looks like he created them with the appearance of having had parents. And if you walk through the math, math, by the way, that evolutionists have developed, with that starting point, instead of assuming like the evolutionists do that all DNA differences are the result of mistakes and mutations over millions of years, you can produce a whole diversity of species very quickly. This is something I've written about uh, on our website, answersingenesis.org. If you just Google using our search engine, the origin of species after the flood, I've got about 11 articles that, in, in lay-friendly terms that explain what we've just discussed. And we've got a book coming out, too, uh, that Terry Morton's the next guest we has, was the editor of, Searching for Adam. Uh, I and Jeff Tompkins contributed the chapter on the genetics of human origin, so encourage anyone interested in this topic to pick up a copy of that, where we go through not only just the question of Africa versus non-Africa, chimp versus human, but is there anything in genetics that points to 6,000 years? Uh, where do the different races come from? These are, these are the sorts of things we cover and a whole lot more in that fantastic resource. Man, I'll tell you something. You guys, you guys are a breath of fresh air and, uh, uh, collectively and individually. And I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Jensen for, for explaining all that you did. And we're, we're gaining on the break. So, uh, I just want to say thank you so much. My goodness, you've done, I mean, uh, yeah, wow. Again, collectively and individually, the information that you're providing is so important. Uh, and I would urge everyone to support uh, your work, AnswersInGenesis.org. Uh, thank you, my brother. Thank you so much. I do hope uh, you come back as well because, man, this is fascinating stuff. It really is. Thanks so much for the opportunity to, to talk about it. Well, well, thank you, sir. God bless. All right. Before Likewise. We, all right. Before we bring uh, uh, our next guest on here, uh, of course, this is going to be Dr. Mortensen. We we are going to we're up against the uh, break, but I, I, want, I just want to say that, of course, we you know, folks, we are following the current events. We we are we look. We understand there's a lot of things taking place out there. The, the, the you know there's riots, there's this, there's that. Uh, we get that. We are following this. Um, watch carefully and, and and watch watch our website too, because we're going to be directing you in in certain areas where I believe, we believe collectively that uh, that you need to pay attention to because this is the most, in our view, this is the most dangerous period between now and the inauguration. Uh, b- before we do get to the break, folks, I don't know whether you've done this yet or not. Uh, Alex Wilson, Precious Timber, my goodness, coconuts, uh, uh, profits and coconuts, have you gone there yet? If you are an individual where you're looking for, if you're an accredited investor looking for opportunities to make upwards of 15%, visit Profits and Coconuts, because coconuts, I, I didn't know this, but, but man, you think of coconut, when, when somebody says, what do you think of when you when you see a coconut, I think Gilligan's Island, okay, um, worldwide demand, it's, it, it, coconuts are one of the highest yielding cash crops, I mean, high wealth individuals, Coke, Pepsi, big Big companies are investing in coconuts as growth investments for long-term income, folks. Go to uh, ProfitsInCoconuts.com and read about it. And also Precious Timber. Go to Precious Timber. Um, in fact, go to HagmanReport.com and click on the link to Precious Timber. Take a look at everything Alex Wilson and his conglomerate, his corporation, his initiative has to offer. I mean, they have done so much the with respect to coconuts themselves you can actually uh, uh invest in coconuts invest in timber 15% per year perhaps as it may yield as much you've got a triple bottom line opportunity and as we look into a trump potential legacy well 
there we have it. I mean, you're going to want something that could be beneficial like this. Alex Wilson has the answers. You can call 855-888-6288 or go to ProfitsInCoconuts.com. That's right. Hagman and Hagman Report going to be right back with Dr. Mor- uh, Dr. Morrison. Man, to continue this fascinating topic. Stay right where you're at. edition of the Hagman and the Hagman Report on this Thursday. It feels like Friday after the long week we've had with the presidential election, our six-hour broadcast on Tuesday, and but it still is Thursday. We have another guest from Answers in Genesis. This next guest is Dr. Mortensen, and he is going to be talking, uh, he's a theologian, and he's going to be talking about the third installment of Answers in Genesis. Folks, bookmark the website, answersingenesis.org, and check out uh, all the great content they have there. They have stuff for kids, educational tools, uh, outreach information. They have a store, as well as interactive media. Mr. Mortensen, are you with us? I am. Thanks for coming on the Hagman and Hagman Report. It is great to have you. We've been learning a lot about Answers in Genesis uh fantastic um work you guys are doing where would you where do you want to start in this segment well i thought i'd I'd just give you a little bit of my own background and how i how i came to aig um i grew up in a church-going family but i wasn't uh i wasn't taught the things that i believe today about creation and evolution in fact i didn't come to personal faith in christ until the end of my first year at the university of minnesota where I was studying mathematics, uh, but this the question of origins was one of the first questions I had as a as a young Christian, um, because of course I'd I'd gotten evolution in school and science programs and stuff uh, growing up, but um, after I after I came to Christ and finished college, I I joined the staff of a, a Christian organization called Campus Crusade for Christ and served for 26 years uh, with that ministry, uh, much of it in Eastern Europe, um, most most of those years, both before and after the fall of communism. And, of course, the communists taught evolution from the cradle of the grave. Uh, it was a foundation of their atheistic worldview. So I, I uh, saw the fruit of that. And, um, and along the way, I, <clears throat> I picked up uh, a seminary degree, and uh, really studied the issue from a biblical perspective and then uh, did my Ph.D. in England in the history of geology looking at where this, how this controversy really developed and, and what I uh, really studied was that it, it didn't start with Darwin. A lot of people think that the problem started with Darwin but actually it, it started in the late 18th and early 19th century with the idea of of millions of years that came into geological thinking and uh, it was the millions of years that really paved the way for Darwin's ideas if he hadn't had the millions of years to work with 
uh, his theory would have been dead in the womb. So well, you, um, you, that the, was the, very... The, the doctors, the, the guest on before you uh, uh, really set Dr. it up where, Yes, where the uh, uh, Darwin didn't have all the facts. All, you know, I mean, when, as I understand it, he was operating off of... Uh, uh, insufficient information based on species and such. So. Oh, yeah. But he built his ideas of slow, gradual biological change on the, on the, on the uh, foundation of the ideas of Charles Lyell and others in the early 19th century who said the geological record of rock layers and fossils are the result of slow, gradual geological change. And so Darwin was, in, in some senses, was almost more of a geologist than a biologist, certainly on his five-year voyage around the world in 1831 to 36. Uh, he spent a lot of time looking at geology. So he just took that idea of slow, gradual uh, geological change, slow, gradual sedimentation and erosion to produce the, the rock record like we see so clearly in the Grand Canyon, but is everywhere on the earth. Uh, and he just applied that to biology. So um, the the idea of millions of years is really foundational to this whole evolutionary worldview. Okay, and I often say this word "wow," uh, but "wow." Okay, so um, what's the truth with respect to all of this? What's well, the truth? I, I like I like to say, um, well, it, it is the truth is there is no scientific uh, method or process that can be used to determine the age of the Earth because every process that we study in the present. Uh, if we wanted to extrapolate from a present process, whether it's radioactive decay uh, or how much uh, how much sediment the the rivers of the world are carrying to the ocean, or how much salt is getting into the oceans, any of those processes that we would study today could only be used as a clock if we make assumptions about the past, but we have no way of knowing if those assumptions are right. So there's no scientific way to determine the age of the Earth. The only way we can know is if there's an eyewitness who was there who uh, who told us. And the Bible is the eyewitness testimony of the Creator. And it tells us uh, when God created, how long He took to create, what order he created in. It tells us about a, a global flood at the time of Noah that destroyed the surface of the earth. And th those are all historical accounts in Genesis 1 to 11. There are many Christians today that want to say, well, it's sort of historical or it's semi-poetic or it's, um, you know, myth or, or saga or uh, symbolic poetry. But None of those views of Genesis 1 to 11 will stand up to scrutiny. It is history, just like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the book of Acts and the book of Exodus and the book of Joshua. So that's the only way that we can really know about our origins is uh, to have the eyewitness testimony of the one who was there who knows everything and always tells the truth. 
In AnswersInGenesis.org, I mean, this is a one-stop shop to prove, well, not to prove, but to, well, maybe that's the word, uh, to, to verify the, the creation account. Well, to give compelling evidence. Right. Okay. And, and it's, it's so interesting. I mean, this is the basis, the foundation of, of everything, I guess. Yeah. Mm. It, it okay. absolutely is. And, uh, you know, you, aren't, aren't both of you in, in, uh, in background investigators? Yes. Yes. Were yeah, you both involved in detective work or law? Uh, detective, uh, 30 years, uh, inclu- yes, including, uh, criminal yeah. as well as civil. Right. Well, see, the question of origins is, here's, here's something that a lot of people are really confused about. That there are actually two broad categories of science. There's what we call uh, operation science or experimental science. It's the science that, you know, put a cell phone in everybody's pocket and finds cures for disease and and uh, makes better, you know, automobiles or or whatever. The technology and and cures for disease. Um, and everybody uses that kind of science. And uh, all creationists love that kind of science. We use the technology. I'm using a telephone right now. Um, but that kind of science won't answer the question, uh, how did the Grand Canyon form? Because you can't recreate the Grand Canyon in the laboratory. Uh, it won't answer the question, is the body under the slab in the floor of Westminster Abbey Church, Church in London that has chiseled in it Charles Darwin, is that really Charles Darwin? You can't take the lid off and ask him. You can't raise him from the dead. You can't recreate him in the lab. It's a historical question. And uh, a lab experiment can't prove that uh, John Doe murdered that lady that you're doing investigations about a past event and what your assumptions are about what could possibly be the explanation uh, and how you investigate the evidence is affected by your assumptions. And, and for example, yeah. if, a, if, if, an, if a police officer or detective is investigating a crime and he is very racist... He may, he may, he may, consciously or unconsciously, uh, misinterpret the evidence to nail the black man that he thinks is guilty. But right, real, or, or 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 work from a predetermined conclusion, the one that you believe to be true, and work backwards with erroneous or fabricated or even twisted evidence. Right. That's right. And but what happens when we get a an eyewitness? And we can cross-examine that eyewitness, and we find out this person is of sound mind, he's uh, truthful, and the, the evidence in, in examining him indicates he really is an eyewitness and he's trustworthy. Then once we take that eyewitness testimony and look at the evidence, the circumstantial evidence, it, it all fits into place. And I know I can't talk off the top of my head about them, but I know I've read of, of cases where, where the police had what appeared to be an absolutely watertight case against Mr. X, and then an eyewitness came forward, and uh, when, they, when they put that testimony with the evidence, they saw actually the evidence didn't point to Mr. X. It pointed to Mr. Z. And... Uh, 
And so the Bible is the eyewitness testimony about the origin and uh, and the 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 history of the world. Now, it doesn't answer every question, but it gives us the big ideas, the key events in history to understand our world. And those are in Genesis 1 to 11, because they answer the question, uh, where did life come from? Where did the stars and galaxies come from? Uh, answers questions, uh, why is there death? Uh, answers the question of where did marriage come from? What is marriage? Uh, what is man? Is he just an animal? It answers the questions about the origin of languages, the origin of, of people. And because it has an account called the Genesis flood, it answers the question, why is the earth covered with thousands of feet of sedimentary rocks containing billions of dead plants and animals? Uh, it, it explains the world that we live in. So Connecting, um, connecting the dots, assembling the evidence, yes. That, that's it, right. Wow. Okay. And, and all of this is important. And, and folks, you know, look, we... we I mean, at the, to me, this is the, again, as I'll use the word foundation, this is the foundation of our faith, uh, in a sense. Um, I don't want to get too wrapped up in semantics here, but, but you understand what I mean. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, well, Genesis you know, is foundational to the the gospel and to the whole rest of the Bible, and, and it's not an accident that the first book of the Bible is Genesis, and the, and the first eleven chapters talk about the things that they talk about. Because if you don't if you don't understand or don't believe those things, it, it's like taking a wrecking ball to the foundations of a house. Sooner or later, it's going to collapse, and we're witnessing that in our culture today. We're witnessing the the moral collapse of our culture, um, and well, you know I was. Uh, well, let me let me read to you a couple of quotes. One is by um, a pastor in England in 1834, and he was right in the in the time period when the ideas of millions of years was was developing in geology. This is 25 years before Charles Darwin published his book, and. Uh, Listen to his logic here. He said, many reverend geologists, and he's referring to geologists at that time, many of them were also ordained Anglican clergymen, quite different from this today. He said, many geologists, however, would evince their reverence for the divine revelation, that is the Bible, by making a distinction between its historical and moral portions and maintaining that the latter only is inspired in absolute truth, but that the former is not so, and therefore is open to any latitude of philosophical or scientific interpretation, modification, or denial. According to these uh, impious and infidel modifiers and separators, he had a little bit of fire in his soul, there's not one-third of the Word of God that is inspired, for not more, nor perhaps so much of that Word, is occupied in abstract moral revelation instruction and precept the other two-thirds therefore are open to any scientific modification and interpretation or if scientifically required to a total denial it may however be safely asserted that whoever professedly before men disbelieves the inspiration of any part of the revelation of scripture disbelieves in the sight of god its inspiration altogether. If such principles were permitted of the Most High to proceed to their ultimate drifts and tendencies, now listen, he's speaking in 1834 right. in England. How
how long would they be sweeping all faith in revealed and inspired veracity, that is the scriptures, from off the face of the earth? What the consequences of such things must be to a revelation-possessing land, time will rapidly and awfully unfold in its opening pages of national skepticism, infidelity, and apostasy, and God's righteous vengeance on the same. That was 1834. He didn't claim to be a prophet, but those are prophetic words. Indeed they are. And, uh, and, wow. If you know anything about the history of, of England and Great Britain, um, it, it, it was powerfully influenced by Christianity. It had a state church, still has a state church, although it's spiritually almost decimated by liberal theology. But you look at at Britain at the end of the Second World War, almost 50% of British people went to church uh, every Sunday. It's down to about 6% in Britain now, and a lot of those churches aren't worth attending. And look at what's happened to the United States in the last 50 years as as we have just seen a, a massive erosion of the influence of Christianity in the culture and then the total moral breakdown of our country. Uh, but it's it's all related to this question of origins. Uh, you may know the name John Dewey, the uh, mm-hmm. when many consider him the father of modern American education back in the in the 1920s and 30s. Well, he was one of the original signers of the first Humanist Manifesto in 1933. And, and listen to the first two points of that Humanist Manifesto. First, religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. Second, humanism believes that man is a part of nature and that he has emerged as a result of a continuous process. That is, that's, that's human evolution. And then the fifth point of the manifesto in 1933 flows right out of those two. Humanism asserts that the nature of the universe depicted by modern science makes unacceptable any supernatural or cosmic guarantees of human values. Religion must formulate its hopes and plans in the light of the scientific spirit and method. And that that's what's happened in America. The public schools have been taken over by the atheist worldview. Not every teacher is an atheist. There are Christians in our public schools, but their hands are tied. They have to teach the curriculum, and it is an atheistic worldview that's being taught, and that destroys the foundations of, of any moral absolutes, any value. And so, you know, here we have in this last election, what was it, four states that voted to um, approve assisted suicide. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're, yeah, we're we just racing into that. moral insanity. And, and, and you know, if if the rules, and I don't mean to take your time, but 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 you make a, this is such an important point because if the work that you've done and, and what you what you just stated, if this would be front and center in our schools, in our teachings across the United States, um, there would be a lot of, of well, the foundations of this um, this communism uh, or, or this. Uh, um, what's the word? Atheist, atheistic, communist, atheistic, whatever, whatever we're, we're affected at. I mean, it, not necessarily it, communist, but it's certainly an atheistic worldview that is controlling our culture. Godless, as I guess I was trying to find. Yeah. Yes, yes, godless. Yeah, and and that's wow. 
Okay. And, and that, you make a great, uh, wow. Okay. Great, great, great stuff here. Yes. Yeah. And, and more, so, and, and wow. see, this, this, this whole problem didn't start with Darwin. It started with the rejection of the biblical flood and the biblical chronology. And, um, and now what we've got is not, you know, historically, here's what happened. First, in, the, in 200 years ago, after 1,800 years of the almost universal belief of the church that God created about 6,000 years ago in six literal days and destroyed the world with a global flood, that was, that was almost the universal belief of the church for 1,800 years. 200 years ago, deist and atheist and other secular humanist thinkers uh, got control of the of the um, brand new science of geology, which wasn't dealing with experiments and reproducible, observable experiments, but was trying to reconstruct the unobserved past. Um, that took hold. The church quickly compromised with the millions of years idea, and some Christians said, well, the flood was a local flood in the Middle East. Some Christians said, well, it was a global flood, but it was so peaceful it didn't leave any geological evidence. Some said, well, it was a myth. And the days of creation weren't literal. They were figurative of long periods of time, or, or the gap theory, we can put the millions of years, however much the geologists want, we'll just stick it between verse 1 and verse 2 of Genesis 1. And and, uh, and so the church compromised that. Then Darwin came along, 1859. The church was still saying at that point that God created plants and animals. They're just exquisitely designed. And and uh, but Darwin's theory came along. Okay, well the animals and the plants evolved, but not people. People were created by God. And then Darwin published his book Descent of Man in 1871. And it's full-blown human evolution, and and much of the church had had embraced liberal theology, and they accepted that. And okay, well, man's body evolved, but God breathed into an an ape-like creature or whatever, um, and that became man. And then eventually, liberal theology says it's all it's all myth. Well, the evangelicals are always trailing behind the liberals, and. Uh, the, the evangelicals hung on to uh, creation, hung on to uh, a literal atom, a literal fall, but now at, at the, the end of the 20th century and, and the beginning of the 21st century, we're seeing more and more evangelicals embracing evolution and even questioning or, or doubting or denying a literal atom and we're seeing more of more openness to evolution and even human evolution in our evangelical seminaries, and uh, I am deeply concerned about that. Which is why um, I initiated a project to gather together uh, fifteen other uh, authors to write a book that just came off the press. Uh, I just got my copies about two days ago. It's called Searching for Adam, and it is a, a defense of the literal truth of Genesis about man's origins, Adam, uh, and we do it with 16 experts, and we're, we're presenting biblical, theological, historical, paleontological, genetic, uh, anatomical, Archaeological and sociolog uh, uh, social arguments for the truth of Genesis because it is under assault even in evangelical circles. And 
once you once you destroy Adam, you've destroyed the gospel. Because Paul says in Romans 5.12, through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, uh, for that all have sinned. And then he goes on in the rest of the chapter 5 of Romans to compare Jesus with Adam. And, uh, and in 1 Corinthians, when he's talking about the resurrection in chapter 15, he does the same thing. He says, death came from, by Adam, and life comes from, from Christ. So if you mess with Adam, and you start to say he was mythological, uh, then Jesus died for a mythological problem, and he's a mythological savior. And I, I, could, give you, I could give you probably a half a dozen quotes of evolutionists who, say, who see it clearly. And they say evolution is absolutely the death knell of Christianity because it destroys the foundations of why we need the gospel. You certainly, yeah. you certainly, you certainly mapped that out fabulously. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, man. One other thing I want to mention here, because there are a lot of Christians who reject evolution, but they accept the millions of years and they say it doesn't matter. Uh, a lot of lot of seminary professors think that, and one one really important truth of Genesis that a lot of people haven't thought about is the issue of of death. Why is there death? Why is there not only human death, but there's there's natural evil like hurricanes and tsunamis and tornadoes uh, and earthquakes that that kill people, and we've got. We've got, uh, you know, sharks attacking people swimming in the ocean and alligators eating, a, you know, attacking a two-year-old boy in Florida, you know, a couple of years ago. And why do we have that, uh, that, that evil and the death and disease and suffering? Well, in the evolutionary view, it's been going on for millions of years. But in a biblical view, you start out with a creation that is very good. Genesis one thirty one says, and the ver- two verses right before that says that God created Adam and Eve, and He commanded them to eat the plants, not to eat animals. And then He also said in verse thirty that uh, it, the animals and the birds were also to eat the plants. So there was no carnivorous behavior before Adam sinned. There was no death and disease and suffering. There were no natural disasters. That's all the result of the fall. And, uh, you know, we could, Genesis 3 indicates that. Romans 8 says that the whole creation is in bondage to corruption right now, waiting to be set free. Revelation 22, 3 says, well, chapter 21, 3 to 5 says, uh, when Jesus comes again, there won't be any more crying, no more tears, no more suffering. And Genesis, or, uh, Revelation 22.3 says there won't be any more curse. It will be removed. So the curse came in in Genesis 3. It's being removed at the second coming. So when, when Christians accept millions of years, they're accepting millions of years of death and bloodshed and violence that is represented in the fossil record that the evolutionists say was formed over millions of years. There's, there's cancer in dinosaur bones for example, that are supposedly millions of years old. There are thorns and thistles in rock layers that the evolutionists say are three to 400 million years old. And yet Genesis 3 says thorns and thistles came into the creation as a result of God's curse after Adam's sin. So 
when when people accept the millions of years or say it doesn't matter, they don't realize uh, what they are doing. They are destroying the Bible's teaching about the original, very good creation, about the the curse at the creation in our present fallen world, and the future redemptive work of Christ when he will redeem the creation and and restore it and renew it, and there won't be any more of this death and suffering. So uh, the the death issue is really critical. And you know, there are a lot of people uh, today, there's a growing number, it's still small, of of scientists who are who are doubting or or denying Darwinian evolution. They're they're part of what's called the intelligent design movement. Um, and most of them involved in that, uh, they don't never never pay any attention to Genesis. They they don't they they don't accept what the Bible says about the age of the earth. They say that doesn't matter. And they just argue for design. And we see amazing design in living creatures uh, in our world. But Absolutely. the evolutionists will always point respond to that by by pointing to the to the evidence of the curse, although they don't believe in the curse, but they'll say, well, what's what's uh, so intelligent and and uh, design about a worm boring into the eye of a little boy on the bank of a river in Africa? Mm. And that doesn't look very intelligent, certainly doesn't look very good. What kind of a designer would make a world like that? My response to that is, and it can only come from a belief in what Genesis says, God didn't make a world like that. This Amen to that. The world the fallen world. That's Dr. the fallen world. Hey, thank you. We are at the at the very end of our time. I want to thank you so much for coming on tonight. Wow. You guys did a great Big job. Answersingenesis.org. Answersingenesis.org. Sign up for their free newsletter. Bookmark their website. We will be hearing more from them in the future. Until thank tomorrow. you so much for your gift of time. Yeah, absolutely. Until tomorrow. God bless each and every one of you. James Wesley Rawls will be with us in the first hour, followed by Stuart Rhodes from Oath Keepers in hours two and three. Not going to want to miss the end of the week broadcast. Until then, stay safe. God bless. Have a good night.